Support for Boston Public Radio comes from the trustees. You can ring in spring at Nomkeg in Stockbridge with the annual Daffodil and Tulip Festival. Colorful seasonal blooms April 19th through Mother's Day. Advanced tickets required. More at thetrustees.org spring. And Dandelion Energy, committed to helping reduce the use of fossil fuels by providing geothermal home heating and cooling solutions to homeowners across the Northeast. More information at dandelionenergy.com. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, we start by asking you and ourselves, what took white people so long to join this movement? Then the race for a vaccine is on, but is the vaccine the be-all, end-all when it comes to fighting COVID-19? Have we ignored the benefit of drugs already on the marketplace? MIT economist John Gruber thinks so, and in a few minutes he'll join us to tell us why. At noon, we'll cover Governor Baker's coronavirus press conference. Then, when President Trump seemed to stumble while walking, it didn't inspire a Saturday Night Live sketch a la Gerald Ford, but it did raise concerns about his health. Whether or not the president is sick is a mystery, but should it be? Our medical ethicist Art Kaplan thinks so, and he'll join us to tell us why. That's coming up and more on Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Good morning, Jim. Hey there, Marjorie. How are you? Good. So today, white people appear to be reckoning with racism. There's a new poll. There are a lot of polls that say this, that 76% of Americans say racial discrimination in the U.S. is a big problem. That's up from 51% just five years ago. Across the country, white people are participating in protests. Yes, some are guilty of virtue signaling along the way. But what's happening? Why does this moment feel different from all the others? Did one week in May uh, reset the national conversation on race? Of course, first came the video of George Floyd being murdered by a white police officer. Then came the video of Amy Cooper calling the cops on a man who was birding in Central Park while black. You know, it might be easier for white Americans to distance themselves from abusive cops but an Amy Cooper, I think, a white woman with all the trappings of an enlightened liberal, was she too hard to dismiss? After all, if white people don't see Amy Cooper in themselves, they surely see her in friends or family or coworkers. In the last couple of weeks, the world has presented our country with a constellation of events that are making it impossible to not see racial injustice. We're opening lines asking you, why did it take white America so long to not just see it, but to denounce it and do something about it? The number is 877 877- Three zero one eighty nine seventy. Why did it take so long, Marjorie Egan? <clears throat> well, I, I'm not an expert on this, but there's been a lot of theories put forward. One is that we have seen these uh, horrible situations over and over again with our own eyes, and I think seeing a cop with his foot on a knee on a man's neck for eight minutes and forty six seconds while that man is begging for his life. Uh, you, you can't quite deny that you, you saw that right in front of your eyes. I also think that, um, y- you know, p- human nature, we are self-interested. 
you know, you're, you're, it, it tends to be if, you know, you don't know somebody who's gay, you might not have been out championing for gay rights when that was hitting the fan uh, years ago. If you are not a woman, you may not be uh, so involved in the Me Too movement about sexual harassment because you're a man. I think I, I like to think, maybe I'm sounding like Pollyanna, I don't think necessarily that everybody who's white has been a racist dog and didn't care. I think that lots of people who are white and some people even who are black don't know the history of racism in the country. And also we're segregated. You know, you know, we're segregated. I, I, I know you've said that a lot, and I agree. We don't know enough. You don't need to know history. You need to know present George Floyd is not the first George Floyd. Amy Cooper is not the first Amy Cooper. And, you know, it, I, I do see a change as well, but I, I have to say I'm maybe a little bit more cynical. I think what helped make this as diverse a movement as it's become are, I mean, I think there is a lot of good motivation. I think we did reach a breaking point, we being white people. Uh, but I think there are two things that contribute to it. One, coronavirus. So there are a lot of people who have more time to focus on things other than their jobs, for example. And two, there is such animus in a significant chunk of the population towards Donald Trump, particularly towards the guy who started the birther movement around race issues, that there's almost like a perfect storm. It's Cooper, it's Floyd, it's the piling up of all these injustices and crimes. Uh, And then the backdrop, I think, is an environment with a president that who most people think, uh, I mean, you know, yesterday, I didn't realize this till late last night, even after I did my television show, I rewatched, not all, so I could be wrong, and if I'm wrong, someone I'm sure will call me out, I rewatched uh, the president's announcement around uh, his executive order on police brutality. You know what he never it's mentioned terrible. yesterday? Systemic racism. Never mentioned race. Yeah. It's almost like it didn't happen. Uh, it, it just, it is, so I think, Having Trump there, the the benefit is that there's a lot of animus and people are able to to channel it through these really important protests. So we want to know what you think. Why did it take so long? And um, and the assumption in our question is we're finally there, but the polls and the protests seem well, to suggest we are. I don't know. If, if I mean, I think we're more aware of it now. I think a lot of us white people have to be more proactive in our own circles to react to the, the 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 racist things that you hear you hear mm-hmm. them from family members you hear them you see them uh, people send memes you, you just have to stop say ha ha, ha. You, you know you got to stand up that I don't want to hear that I don't want to hear that anymore and I don't think we've been very good at that I have been a chicken about that I must admit I have let things slide instead of standing up and saying I'm uncomfortable with that unless it was in front of my kids and then I had to move into mother mode do you remember that what was the name of that woman we spoke to about a week ago who was so great who said, you know, what we, I'm paraphrasing her line, is what we've been for, oh, from Drake University in Iowa. I, I, my apologies, I can't remember her name. But she was saying the problem is, you know, a lot of us think uh, being non-racist, which we like to think we are, is enough. You have to be affirmatively anti-racist, yeah. which most of us have not well, been. I thought it, she made her point beautifully, Yeah, it requires actually. some courage, and it acquires oh. getting in arguments and alienating people. And I think lots of us would rather not do that. But you know something? I'm, I'm a big fan of the uh, Sunday New York Times. I still get it delivered at home, even though it's expensive. I love the book review every week. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the bestsellers, e-books and, and nonfiction books in, in, in the New York Times, I think this signals a change, Jim. Okay. White fragility, that's one. <laughs> so you want to talk about race. That's two. Really? 
really? Me and white supremacy, that's three. Wow. How to be an anti-racist, <laughs> wow. that's four. Plus the new Jim Crow, which I've talked about forever, which has been out for a long time. That um, These books are, are, are among the top books Americans are reading, and I suspect that's since they're aimed at white Americans, it, it's white Americans that are, are buying those to look at their own actions and how they can be effectively anti-racist. And we, it, you know, we've talked about this many times in the show, that you have to be, as I said before, um, much more courageous than I think a lot of us has been, certainly um, more than I've been. Anyway, 877-301-8970 is the number. BPR at WGBH.org is the email, and you can tweet us at boss. Public Radio. Linda and Easton, thank you for calling. Hi, Linda. Oh, hi. hi, Jim and Marjorie. First hi. time caller, long wow. time listener. Thanks. Um, you're welcome. I think the reason why folks are kind of um, coming to grips with what's been happening uh, for a long time in the black community in terms of um, police, uh, I guess, overuse of force is we're all stuck at home in the coronavirus. Um, and there was really nothing else going on. And the second thing is the media had this horrific video on a constant loop. You couldn't look away, so you kind of had to face what was going on. So I think there is going to be a change, um, hopefully, is because we, we need allies. And it's not you know, one group versus the other, this impacts everyone as a community. That's just my, my thought on the matter. Linda, thank you very much for that call. I mean, I think that obviously, as you said, Jim, coronavirus does have something to do with it, um, right? We all yeah, and again, I'm not, I don't mean to say we don't, you know, we're not people of principle, but it, it helps when there, can, there are other things around us that, that, sort of push us in the right direction. Linda, thanks for your first call. I hope you make well, more How many times did we say back when we were, you know, gay rights was in the fore? Well, things started to change when you realized that your brother-in-law was gay or mm-hmm. your sister was gay or one of your close, when you got to know a gay person and had conversations with them about their lives. And I think, that, I think the same is true with, with race. I mean, I think younger people growing up, I mean, I grew up in Fall River where there were almost no uh, black people at all, even though it's a working class town, my kids had a much different life. Your kids had a much different life. And I think that's one of the encouraging things. There's more, um, I, I, my children have much more cross-racial relationships than I certainly ever If did. your point is that, that young people are pushing older people in the right direction, I agree with that. Yep. I totally agree with that. But this notion that we have to, we have to have learned more than we knew uh, it has been all around us for most of our adult lives. Jim, Jim, I mentioned the other day. I mentioned the other day that when 60 Minutes did this thing on Tulsa, where they had this massacre and basically burned down this whole uh, very affluent, successful yeah. section of Tulsa, that an African American young man from Tulsa didn't know about this. He didn't learn about this in his schools. So I think there's tremendous ignorance about it. I think there was tremendous... No, 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 you're not... No, you're missing my point. What? There may be ignorance. I'm not quarreling with you. There is not ignorance about uh, Eric Garner or Trayvon Martin or the... uh, We could spend the whole three hours listing African-American men and women who've been executed. So again, my point is, which I haven't been clear about, even if one is history ignorant, which far too many of us are, particularly history of black America, we live in the present when it's been going on all around us for decades and decades but and decades. But it hasn't been going on all around It's been going on all around us, but the, and the black community knew it. 
But the white community wasn't paying attention. No, I, don't, I don't think. I mean, I, I don't think. We saw this. Um, I mentioned yesterday we had this big teach-in, supposedly. We're always having teach-ins on race in America. How many teach-ins have we had? O.J. Simpson was supposed to be the first teach-in, right? We all, we all spoke about how black America understood exactly why he was acquitted because the cops were so racist in Los Angeles that nobody believed anything the cops said that was black for good reason. White America was stunned. They couldn't understand how he could get away with this. Then you had the moment where, where African Americans all over the country talked about you know, cops calling them the N-word, cops beating them up. Prominent uh, Black Americans say these things. That was a teaching moment. Then we had teaching moments during Barack Obama's presidency when he had, you know, the minister that was saying he didn't, he hated America, and there was an understanding about why he might have that attitude towards America. Blah blah blah. We have all these teaching uh, moments, but I don't think there's something, there's something about seeing things with your own eyes. Somebody Can I make more... a suggestion for you, what? if I may? What? Because we should take calls. You know what I did last night because I. Am, uh, I who don't, I'm not the most self-aware person, but I was sort of questioning my own late to the fair kind of thing. Go back and watch the videos from recent years. This morning I watched the killing of Alton Sterling. Oh. Yesterday, Eric Garner. And I say to myself, why did I watch this? And all the white people in this country watch this constantly. And and we can go down the list and do nothing. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not quarreling with your conclusion that we weren't paying attention. My question, though, is why weren't we paying attention? And I'm glad we are now. But what was wrong with, with us before? Well, James in Worcester, you're on Boston Public Radio. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for the call. Hi. Hi, Jim and Marjorie. Um, I think the the great orator Will Smith said it best is that racism isn't getting worse. It's just getting recorded. Um, exactly. What's unfortunate is that we yeah. had... Yeah, but the problem is, is we go back to people like Eric Gardner, who was one of, one of the first major ones that got recorded. That didn't really that that went somewhere, but that didn't change the conversation. I think what's happening right now is what you both have been saying about things piling on, and being able to sort of be forced to watch, as the previous caller said, because of our disposition. Um, but unfortunately, I I I, I sense. Uh, a lack of steam just because we go, you know, all the way to a hundred for a couple of weeks, that. and then we start to see this, this almost calculated dialing back. I hope that's not the case. I hope that's James. Not the case you know, for, before you go, when you mentioned the recordings, yeah. I, I want to reiterate something I said in the introduction of this segment. The more, I, the more I think about this, I had this discussion on TV. I don't know if we did on the radio too when he was with us with Deval Patrick. I think in many ways the Amy Cooper thing had at least as profound an impact for reasons I mentioned. Most white people can't imagine them in a such self in a situation like George Floyd, but almost every white person can imagine an Amy Cooper in their world. And I think that I I think the combination of the two really both on video had a profound effect. But in yeah, any I case, think it was the specificity of the Amy Cooper video yeah. that made it big difference in how she used her words swore at it. But that's my thoughts on it. James, thanks for sharing those thoughts. We appreciate it. Well, you know, I think if you're honest, um, and Jesse Jackson's paved the way for some of us white people to admit this, if you're alone on the street at night and you're white, you're more scared mm. of a big black guy than you are of a big white guy or a big Asian guy or uh, a, 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 a big other, any other kind of man. I mean, that I think that's a racist sentiment that lots of us have. And 
he said it, so you feel like you could say it because he's obviously a mm-hmm. black guy. But I think that, you know, that's true, is it not? Uh, I think it is. And he, by the way, you've often said that he said he too had exactly. the uh, same reaction. That's right. When Jesse Jackson said, you feel like you'd come out of the closet and say, well, the truth of the matter is, I, I feel that way too. I guess that makes me um, a racist. Brittany from Fall River. Hi, Brittany. Hi, Brittany. Hi, how are you? We're good. Um, so I, the point I would make to that is I grew up in the colorblind generation, um, and I think that plays a huge role in how white people did not see what was going on. Um, by preaching to children about a colorblind society, we started putting the blame on individuals for what was happening to them in various levels of systemic racism because it was all about equality while we never dismantled any of the systems of, of oppression. So we were just failing to recognize that it wasn't an individual's problem, it was the system's problem. But white people didn't see it because, you know, everybody's equal. Yeah, yeah because we deluded ourselves into thinking that was enough. Is that what you're saying, Brittany? Yes, and yeah. we took it completely out of our history as well. I mean, there's so much that's not taught in our history as far as lynching and redlining and Jim Crow and yeah. the ways that that impacted the world we live in today. Um, that coupled with ignoring race as, as something that can influence a person's life, it, it created the situation we're in today. But when you say colorblind, Brittany, I don't, you don't mean that people are colorblind because I don't think anybody's colorblind. No, in the sense that, um, and I feel like, and I could be wrong, speaks to my experience, but many people in my generation, white people in particular, were taught that the color of your skin doesn't matter. Everyone has equal opportunities. Um, The only people who believe in this concept of a colorblind society are white people because they're not experiencing racism and oppression. Beautifully put. Brittany, thanks for a call, a great call. We really uh, really appreciate it. You know, here's an interesting one. Um, uh, Hi, guys. It's because we whites didn't think we were racist, so we couldn't believe so many others were when we heard black and brown people saying it. Trump brought out the closet racist, and people like me can't believe how many there are. Trump has made racism and brought it to the front, uh, brought it to the forefront, and made it undeniable. That's from Angela. Do you remember the great line from? I'm going to butcher this, but from Andrew Gillum when he was running for uh, governor of uh, of uh, Florida, and when he was asked the question, I think at a debate, is Trump a racist? And he said something like, I don't know if he's a racist. I know that racists think he's a racist. That is one of the cleverest lines of all time that I think really captured it uh, quite uh, perfectly. Okay, we are talking about uh, racism in America. We're talking about why it took so long for white people to realize the racism in America is depth and breadth. That conversation continues on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Marjorie and Jim Braddock. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about racism in America and asking why this moment feels different from the others when it comes to white Americans taking responsibility for it, from protesting police brutality to, to figuring out it's not up to black Americans to find solutions or to absolve whites of their guilt in the fight this alone, 877-301-8970. Do you read Janae Osterholt in the I was uh, just going to quote from her piece Oh, so was today. I. Well, you go first. Uh, when we're talking about President Trump, she's a really talented writer. She is Janae great. Osterholt, her piece is in the, uh, um, Osterholt, excuse me, it's on the front page of the Globe today. And she's talking about back in 2015, 
uh, pr then candidate Trump suggested the beating of a Black Lives Matter activist at one of his rallies was justified. Quote, maybe he should have been roughed up because it was absolutely disgusting what he did. The president told Fox News, uh, the guy was there with a Black Lives Matter, dumped the Trump sign. Um, and then he said, remember, I'd forgotten about this. In Long Island, he said to law enforcement, that's the president, please don't be too nice. He yeah. was saying, encouraging um, uh, cops to throw detainees in their cars and not protect their heads. And then just la last month, the Black Lives Matter uprisings grew nationwide. Trump evoked the historical racist motto, quote, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. So she goes down a list of how Trump has incited um, racism, and we've we talked about this right after he was elected president. How these incidents of hate crimes and racist assaults um, increased all around the country. Uh, she's a great writer and a great thinker. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. Andy, you are in Boston. You're on Boston Public Radio. Hi. Hi. Um, I want to go back in history about thirty years. To the Charles Stewart murder of his wife. Oh, gosh, I was yeah. in her birthing class that night. Oh, my God. And um, the whole class, we were all white, um, and it was a horrifying event. For those who don't know, it, it caused a siege of the um, African-American community, primarily in Mission Hill afterwards, because Charles accused a black man of, in the community of murdering his wife and shooting him after the birth class. And it was a hoax. Uh, it was a lie. Um None of us questioned it. The city didn't question it. Um, the media didn't question it. There was, uh, that was the same year that Trump took out an ad in the paper about the Park City, the um, Central Park Central Jogger, Park Five. Yep. wanted to bring back the death, the death penalty. Um, it, this, this idea that um, people will prey on the implicit bias of those of us in the community who are white, who don't think of ourselves as racist, but clearly have bias in our hearts um, is is exactly what Cooper did recently yeah. and what Charles Stewart did over 30 years ago. And to me, you know, I have to wrestle with it personally as someone who was in the class that night and, um, and thought, just please find whoever this is because I want to feel safe going back to the Brigham Women's Hospital next week, you know. And um, I heard Tito Jackson at a, a Black Lives uh, one of the protests recently um, on the news who I had no idea who said he was 14 at the time this has happened. And he was caught up in the search that about 150 men in the city were um, taken and strip searched over and over again and interrogated and intimidated. He's 45 years old now. And I'm, I'm watching him on the news and I'm thinking I was, I was in that class that night and this is how your life was affected by it and how horrified I am that that happened. Not that, I'm not responsible for Charles Stewart and what he did, but I am responsible for not recognizing my own bias all these years. And I think that the consciousness raising that's going on right now is is not unlike consciousness raising for a lot of movements that took a very long time. How long did it take the women's movement to gain equality? How long did it take um, gay people to have the right to be in love and marry? How long is it taking us to recognize all of what's happening and um, it's a consciousness raising that I, I, I don't think you can go back from once you accept it and admit it yeah. and realize it. 
Andy, that was, that was a great one call. hell of a call. Yeah. Thank you so much. That was a great call. It, it, absolutely true. We he, in the he, media did buy it. And, it he, and if not for Matthew Stewart, Charles Stewart's brother, who finally had some conscious uh, bothers and went and, and told his lawyer, Nancy Gertner, Nancy who's Gertner, now yeah, a federal judge, a judge yeah. that indeed his brother had shot Carol Stewart, Demetrius Stewart, in the back of the head, they had a guy arrested. He was arrested. Willie Bennett. Yep. Will, do you remember? I yes, remember I do. It very, very well. Andy, that was a uh, that was a uh, really uh, it was a great call. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. And one of the other things that Osterholt does in her story is talks about how once everybody sort of got it, even though it took us too long, there has been a cascade of action. No one is saying, nor obviously am I, that it's enough. But even Mitch McConnell, who I would argue is the most powerful person in America. Uh, did you see the original? Just yesterday, he was saying that there'd be no votes on any of the police reform efforts until after July Fourth, mm -hmm. and he said either late last night or this morning. This may not seem like a big deal to people, but I think it is a big deal that they'll vote next week in the Senate. I'm not saying the content is what it should be, but when even Mitch McConnell has to give in to the public mood, you know it is uh, it is there. Uh, let's go to Scotland and Boston. Thank you for calling. Hi. Hey there. Hi, Jim and Marjorie. Always a great show and love listening to you both with myself. And oh, my, thank you. Uh, partner. Thanks. Um, I'm an American gentleman, and, and you guys were speaking earlier about what has allowed white people to become more aware of what's going on today, why the reaction, why the big thousand protests, all of which I support. Um, and I think it's a combination of factors. I think, as, uh, as you've alluded to in part in some of your previous programs, it's the CO-19, which I abbreviate, sorry, um, but it's a combination of the CO-19, it's the financial challenges, it's the Eric Garner, it's the George Floyd, and I think people have just reached their threshold. And more importantly, I think what's happened is people have always had these feelings inside, right? People inherently know the difference between right and wrong. You don't have to tell them inside whether or not they actually verbalize that they, they know the difference between right and wrong. Internally, they know the difference between right and wrong. And so one of the things that I think has happened is people's judgment of what's wrong has manifested out of all of these different combination of things that have been coming about in the media. And another thing that you guys brought up in your, in your conversation previously, another program, is that we had to look into the eyes of what happened to George Floyd and the officer yeah. and the carelessness and ruthlessness of humanity in his eyes. And so I think the combination of all of those things resulted in what we actually are seeing today as one of the greatest social movements in American history. Great analysis. So I'll take, I'll yeah. That thank you. Great one too. That was a, that was it. That was a great call. Thank you um, uh, very much for that one, Scotland. You know, every time, every time we talk about this and how, whether it's Floyd or Cooper and Floyd and Cooper and obviously Aubrey before that and Brooks last week, is when, uh, have you seen the video, I don't know if I've mentioned this to you, I'm sure I have. Have you seen the video of uh, George Floyd's little kid oh, saying gosh, my daddy yeah. changed the world? I, I mean, every time, <laughs> I'm, I'm almost crying even saying what the words that she said, but uh, her daddy did change the world. I mean, it is. It, I hope so. Really I mean, it does, it's, it's, it's definitely seems we're, we're heading in the right direction. You know, and I think, I think a lot of us too are, are kind of defensive you know, people don't want to really think about, white people don't really want to think about. Uh, what we've allowed to happen yes. around us. 
I yes, agree with you. And how um, Speaking you, of white people, kind of <laughs> do you believe for the second time that this president signs a, an executive order about police brutality and cannot get the word race or racism? Oh. To cross you see Thomas Hodgson, the, the, the sheriff down in Bristol right County, him. was right I behind him. I saw him right there, <laughs> shoulder to shoulder with no mask. Everybody, the sheriffs, everybody shoulder to shoulder with no mask. Sending a great message yeah. to their constituents back home. It, it, it was nauseating. I mean, it just. Well, nauseating. you know what? I'm almost I'm almost getting tired of criticizing the president because it's so patently obvious that he is a disgrace on so many fronts. It's almost like shooting fish in a barrel now. When I hear people criticizing him, I just think. Yeah, but there's a can I tell you why it's a little bit different? I understand that, and I I, I, intellectually, I'm sort of where you are. Is this bad behavior on his part around coronavirus and about racism spawns other bad behavior, which affects other people who don't subscribe to his world worldview? Do you know what I mean? It sort of trickles down, not just to his supporters. And if that was all it was, I'm listen. That's fine. But it trickles down from them, whether it's that demonstrator, that person who's going to go to the rally in Tulsa without a mask and then go home and have their parents who are 80 years old in the house, or whether the racism trickles down to the co-workers of his, you know, it's just... Okay, okay. I just said I wasn't going to criticize him anymore, but here's one that I just... Go ahead. ahead. (laughs) When he said, when the president said, you know, if we didn't do so... I'm paraphrasing. If we didn't do so much coronavirus testing... There wouldn't be so many cases. Uh, it's just, it's just, it is. I didn't even mention that because it is. There's and, no words. And the, let's move on to the vice president. And the vice president actually said that the cases in 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 Oklahoma have precipitously declined. I know. Actually, he said declined precipitously. That's the exact quote. Mm. At the same time, they are precipitously Going rising. Up. So they just lie, and and um, I don't know. Anyway, Ralph and Quincy. Hi, Ralph. Hey, Ralph. Hello there. Hi. Uh, thank you. I love you guys. Thanks. You know, I'm listening to you, and though I can appreciate you saying the shared ownership on what we do, both black and white, I think that equally, and I think even more importantly, as an African-American man who has experienced racism here in Boston since the age of 12, there's a responsibility that I have to kind of share that and educate people. And I think that there are times where, like, for example, I work for a company that I'm not at liberty to say because I speak for myself. Um, I, uh, I shared my story with the leadership just to give them a little insight so that they could kind of be more familiar with it. I mean, because we have a tendency as people, if we can't identify, we can't identify. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and since they knew me and liked me, um, but they had no idea that uh, I had been uh, kicked down and, and, and beaten at the age of 12. Um, they had no idea of what I go through on a day-to-day or weekly or whatever basis. And, but I think that without anger, without malice, sharing that is what helps open other people's eyes. That is so true. You know... Uh, Ralph, I've been so lucky in my life to be a reporter and, um, and, and covering um, a lot of the African-American community in Boston. I, I remember go, doing in- interviews, and my jaw would be on the floor. I, I couldn't believe, because I had been ignorant about this. And you talk to especially mothers who lost kids, and you just can't believe, and you can't believe not only the, the b- 
brutality that their children suffered, but the situations they're in, the bad schools they're in, the uh, the, the pollution in the in the in the homes where they live, all this systemic racism. And I think, like I said, I think there's a lot of ignorance about it um, in in the white community. Ralph, I, thank you. We hope for it's your ending now. Call we, another good call. We really appreciate. It. I think we have time for one more quick one, Marjorie. Okay, let us go to uh, Bill on Cape Cod. Hi, Bill. Hey, Bill. Hi, Marjorie. Hi, Jim. Long Hi. First time. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. I think um, to me, uh, you've, you've asked the question, why the change? And I, there's been a, a lot of very uh, informative uh, uh, opinions on this. I think really, t for me, it, it's empathy. And I think that's where all change occurs is when we have mm. empathy for somebody else. Yeah. Um, there's been uh, countless uh, black men killed in the custody of police. It's been on television. It's it's been on the news. This isn't the first time. It's not going to be the last time. What is different about this? And to me, it comes down to this. It's not just uh, Americans, but around the world. We're all bottled in because of the, the virus. We're all in our homes, unable to leave. And we feel, we feel that we're getting just crushed by all this. And there's a man whose neck is getting crushed on live TV. And he says, I can't breathe. Well, yeah. You know what? That's how I feel, too. And I think a lot of people feel you feel like we, we just can't breathe. We 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 are stuck. Where we are. And we're we're tired. We're tired of it. And I think that's for the for the first time, many people were able to feel empathy for someone like uh, Mr. Floyd. And I, I as the same reason why I think there's a lot more racism right now, because people feel empathetic to the president. So to me, it's the root is, is empathy. Bill, thank you very much for calling in. We appreciate your time. Unfortunately, we have to move on, Marjorie. We do, but we're moving on to something quite fascinating, if you ask me. I think so, too. Coming up, we're going to talk to MIT economist John Gruber. He's going to tell us about how generic drugs could help us recover from this horrible pandemic. MIT economist John Gruber is next on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio. Back to Boston Public Radio, Marjorie and Jim Browdy. The U.S. has surpassed 2 million confirmed cases of the coronavirus. It has caused over 115,000 deaths, and it's put our economy on a downward trajectory that could take a decade to recover from. The pandemic has been an all-out attack on our lives, our livelihoods, one that economist Jonathan Gruber says demands an all-in response. He joins us on the line to talk about what the role that generic drugs, such as one we're reading about this morning, I'm going to mispronounce it, dexamethasone, should play in fighting coronavirus. John is the Ford Professor of Economics at MIT. He was instrumental in creating both the Massachusetts Health Care Reform and the Affordable Care Act. His latest book is Jumpstarting America, How Breakthrough Science Can Revive Economic Growth and the American Dream. John Gruber, as always, welcome to the show. Great to be here. So... John, we've talked endlessly about, you know, we're all very hopeful we're going to have a vaccine, the sooner the better, blah, blah, blah. But you have written a great piece uh, with some of your colleagues about repurposing generic drugs as therapies. So elaborate. 
Yeah, so I, I mean, I think we have to start with the vaccine, and we all should be pushing towards a vaccine. And I recommend everyone read 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 the article that a number of my colleagues uh, authored in the New York Times about how we need to really be all in on trying to find a vaccine. But I think what that discussion has missed is we also need to be working on cures. We don't just need to work on the vaccine. That would be great. But in the meantime, we need to be thinking about cures for this disease because the vaccine could take years. And while there's a lot of effort towards finding by drug companies towards finding new patentable cures that they can sell for lots of money, there's some low-hanging fruit out there in taking existing safe tried drugs that are generic and using them to attack this disease. And the problem with that is there's not as much money to be made in it. So a lot of the drug companies aren't putting the efforts in on that. So I think that's where, you know, my colleagues and I argue we really need a bigger government role here to make sure that as part of a portfolio of attack this disease, along with vaccine development, along with new drug development, we're exploring uh, repurposing generics to try to help cure this disease. And when you say you're not just talking about repurposing drugs in general, but generics in particular because of the cost yeah. factor? Yeah. So, so basically, look, once again, with the disease that's costing the world economy $350 billion a month, you want uh. to try everything. This is not to say one thing's exclusion of the other. I'm all about, I think we should do more in vaccines. What I'm saying is the difference with generics is that they're, they're, they're cheap. And so basically, if, if we repurpose an existing patented drug, then it's going to be expensive to treat all the people who need it. Whereas if you repurpose a generic, like the recent one that was shown to lower mortality by 30%, uh, or lower symptoms by 30%, um, then that's a cheap way to really uh, uh, address the problem. But the, here's where the economics comes in. The very fact it's cheap means that drug companies don't have incentive to put a lot of effort to make right. it work. Uh, and that is, that is why we end up, it's a larger glimpse into the drug problem in the U.S., but it's basically why we need to be thinking about focusing our government's efforts more broadly, not just on, on vaccines, but on trying to you know, trying to do cures like this. And it comes, you know, look, the one we all have in mind, of course, is hydroxychloroquine, which is a, you know, a, a generic which some people thought could treat COVID. And that's a great example because it illustrates the fact that we want real scientists figuring this out, not fake scientists. And we want to actually think about, you know, it wasn't implausible that hydroxychloroquine could work. That wasn't implausible. It's just the, the, the this sort of discussion ran ahead of the evidence. We need to be looking at all these options. We, we have identified at least 40 possible generic drugs that, that could be repurposed, and we need to be looking at these options and exploring them. And you know, the thing I don't understand from reading your piece, you, I mean, just touch on it. I understand why there's less of an incentive, financial incentive, in the private sector in this. What I don't understand is why governments, the government, in, our, in this case our government, doesn't run at this, not only assuming they actually care about the health of the American people, which at least some presidents do, <laughs> but secondly, they care about uh, finances. And as you've said three times already, repurposed generics are cheap. And so why is there not been, other than this hydroxychloroquine obsession the president had, why has there not been, uh, why do we need you and your colleagues to write this paper, which after having read it, not that I understood it all, but I understood the basic points, I think, something that's pretty obvious to me if you're in the healthcare business in a government? Well, I think that you have to recognize that t two things about the government. So one is that um, 
there is always budgetary pressure on everything. And if you look at uh, BARDA, uh, this organization that's, that's the government agency that's in charge with sort of in investing in new drug candidates, they focus on patentable drugs because then they can sort of offload the cost. It's cheap to the government because you basically don't have to pay much to get companies to do this because they make all their money off the patent. I see, I see. So, it's a way, so, so there's the financial incentives. But I think, I, 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 I think more than that, you know, there is the other big problem the government faces, and we've talked about this and we've talked about, about my book, Jumpstarting America, is that basically an, an attempt like this by definition involves failure. By definition, you need to take multiple shots on goal, and many will miss. Um, but the problem is that if you get penalized every time you miss, you're afraid to take the shots in the first place. And that's the big issue, that we need to recognize that we need, in fact, many to miss. We need to be trying as true vaccines as well. And the problem is that that's difficult. So let's take the example of the, um, of the Zika vaccine. So there was a Zika vaccine. When Zika was in the news, uh, the federal government gave a lot of money to Sanofi to develop a Zika vaccine. It was going very well, and then Zika went out of the news, and the government stopped the funding and left Sanofi holding the bag. And, um, in fact, early results seemed to indicate, after the funding was dead, they, they did a test that seemed to indicate they were well along developing a Zika vaccine, but the government moved on to other priorities. So it's exactly the same kind of short-sighted behavior we're concerned about with private companies we're seeing from the government here, and, and we, need to, we need to fight back against that. So you talk about, you know, uh, government funding preclinical trials, financing clinical trials, uh, contracting for manufacturing promising candidates. What kind of money are we talking about here? Not a ton, because remember, the difference with vaccines is you've got to give it to 3 billion people. Yeah. With a, with, with a cure, you give it to you know, millions of people, not billions of people, and maybe even just hundreds of thousands of people. So you know, we've looked at past examples, and you know, we're talking about something on the order of $100 million per candidate. Now, that's a lot of money because yep. um, you want a lot of candidates. But once again, when you're talking about something that's already cost the U.S. $3 trillion in government financing, it's costing the world economy $350 billion a month, that's small potatoes. Well, you know what else I wondered, Jonathan Gruber, is if there are 40 possible candidates at this moment, because this virus seems to be changing a little bit anyway, you know, it was much more respiratory at the beginning, and now we're hearing about blood clots and young children and all that kind of stuff, if it might be one repurposed drug might deal with one kind of attack on a person while another, you know what I mean? That different drugs might deal better with different strains, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Before he answers, a perfect example of that, by the way, is this dexamethasone we read about this morning. It is very helpful to people who are in extremis, right. but not helpful to people at all who just have minor COVID-19 problems. So, so that's... And that, that's exactly right. And that's why, you know, a vaccine would be better. A vaccine that could actually solve it would be better. But the difference is, let's, say, let's take a simple example. Let's say that you have a certain strain that affects 10% of the people. Okay? That means that, and let's say you can lower the mortality of those people by 30%. Yeah. So that's 3% reduction in mortality. As you said at the top of this, we've had 110,000 people die. So that's something like 3,300 people we could avoid dying. If yeah. we can avoid 3,300 people dying... For $100 million, that's, a lot. that's an incredibly yeah. good deal. 
Yeah. Okay. So th- that's the point. It, 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 we have to get beyond the kind of either solve it all or we don't thinking and realize that if we could save 3,300 lives, that, that would be huge. I mean, that's, you know, more than 9-11 for $100 million. I mean, that's really a, a, an incredibly good investment. John, how did you and your colleagues identify these 40 potential candidates? Oh, this is really, um, this was really done, worked on by others. So my, my colleague, uh, Rena Conti at Boston University, uh, is, is a world expert on pharmaceuticals, and she gathered the data on, on, on um, basically from trial registries and others uh, on candidates that have been identified by, by pharmaceutical experts. So is anybody doing this? You know, there is, there is some, some – look, let's be clear. The private sector is not silent here. The private sector is doing some of this, and some generic candidates are moving forward to the pipeline because there can be some money made. We just think there's not enough, and we think that we need to really do more. I think you ask if anybody's doing this, I think we come back to the same answer we always come back to, which is, yes, China's doing it. Oh, uh, China is putting government funding into – a whole variety of aspects of COVID-19 technology. And indeed, um, you know, coming full circle, um, there's a, a, a new piece of legislation that was introduced, uh, bipartisan, bicameral legislation led by Chuck Schumer, uh, Senators Chuck Schumer and Representative Ro Khanna in, 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 on the Democratic side and Senators Young and Representative Gallagher on the Republican side um, called the Endless Frontiers Act, uh, which is a massive investment in R&D motivated by our competition with China and motivated by the fact that you can see in topic after topic when it comes to COVID-19 how our failure in leadership technology is causing us to fall behind. You know, I know this is not your uh, area of concern, uh, but, you know, there's, there's such desperation, understandable desperation, on the part of so many people here and around the world that every time someone mentions a potential treatment, Everybody jumps, particularly when a president of the United States, I'm not talking about right. bleach, I'm talking about hydroxychloroquine. <laughs> and, you know, the drug that we started this, this dexamethasone, which, of course, I had never heard of till this morning when they were saying good things, the, 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 the flip side, but I guess there's no harm here if people are careful. I think it was Atul Gawande who's quoted in the New York. Everybody's excited about this. It looks like it's going to work. Is that out of uh, University of uh, Cambridge or... I think it's somewhere in England, uh, believe, wherever the hell it is. I know it's out of England. I don't remember where. They did the research, but I think it's a tool Gawande. One of the things I love about having a tool Gawande quoted is they can never quote uh, Dr. Gawande without saying the legendary a tool Gawande <laughs> or the incredible yeah. a tool Gawande. Jim, I mean, Jim it's, something there's always to be aspire a, to. No, Maybe you could be the that, legendary exactly. Jim Brown. Okay, okay, fine, I, I, fine. A, a tool Gawande is legendary. He is legendary. And, and I'll, no, I'll, I know. I'll, I'll, I'm not saying he isn't. But he makes the point. I I hope I'm quoting him directly, uh, correctly. He's the one that said, you know, hold on a second. Uh, uh, this, this is like a press release. I mean, this is essentially what we got out of this one repurposed generic. So there does have to be some care, particularly at a time when people are so passionate in search of anything to grab hold of, John, correct? Th- that's absolutely right. And, and that's right in a couple of senses, Jim. One is we need to be careful and study these things. Now, to be fair, there's a little bit less danger in moving faster on a cure than a vaccine because you're giving a cure to people who are desperately ill. Right. So in some sense, 
Well, that's a fun point. They, they, yeah. they, there's less risk of action you give in the healthy people. So, but we, regardless, we have to be careful and we have to take our time, which is why we need to be taking multiple, doing multiple tracks at once. But the other point that's quite interesting is that's also why we emphasize in our paper, that's also why you need a coordinated approach all the way through the manufacturing. Because here's what you don't want. You don't want a study to come out to say drug X may work. So everyone runs out and buys drug X, and then it's gone. The supplies aren't there, even for people who need drug X for other things. We have a friend who has lupus who couldn't get her hydroxychloroquine. Yeah. Okay, because they're wrong hydroxychloroquine. It's unbelievable, so, I know. So that's why we think we need a comprehensive plan. And this is not original to us. This is what the people you know, have been recommending for vaccines, where you are already committing to the manufacturing capacity even as you're doing the trials. Normally, the way we develop drugs is we do the trial. Once we're sure it works, then we start to build the manufacturing. We have to go faster than that. We have to actually be building the manufacturing capacity even as the trials are going. And what that's going to mean is some wasted manufacturing capacity because some things are going to turn out not to work, but you know what? It's still small potatoes. What it also means is the ones that do work, as soon as they work, the manufacturing capacity is ready yeah. to go, and we're ready to produce this. There's no delays, and we're also producing it along the way in case there's a run on this drug. So, you know, uh, we're talking to John Gruber. Can I, can I follow up on this just yes. for a second, though? Yesterday, something I was hoping to bring up, we had Martin Smith on, who was the guy with his wife behind this fabulous uh, Frontline documentary that aired last night on uh, coronavirus, whatever it's called, the virus, where we went wrong, or whatever it was. It was just, it was great. The thing in his documentary we didn't get to was the transfer of the, I think it's called the pandemic response team, or whatever the office was in the White House, right. to health and human services. And I have to say, until I saw the documentary, my attitude always was, why are Trump critics making such a big deal out of this? If it, had, if it was reconstituted, I don't know if Bolton was telling the truth, but if Bolton was telling the truth and it was simply repurposed, to reuse a word, in a different place, HHS rather than the White House, what's the big deal? But the point that was made by a few doctors in the documentary last night was the difference is when the White House is coordinating something, they can order everybody in different agencies to row in the same direction one secretariat can't do that. So I guess my long-winded question to you, John Gruber, is 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 this is the failure to move as quickly on these repurposed generics as you and your colleagues think we should, is that a function of a disorganized, uncaring federal bureaucracy as well, or are we laying too much at their feet? Um, I think that, uh, you know, this isn't necessarily a Trump problem specifically. This is general, like I said, this government sort of being penny-wise and pound-foolish yeah. on the one hand and being much-too-failure-averse on the other hand. I mean, once again, private investors expect failure. That's what yeah. gives growth to the economies. You take a lot of shots, and the ones that work, work big. And we need the government to think a little bit more like that, especially when the dollars are small relative to the lives at stake. So I think that's what a lot of it. I will say it's absolutely true, from my experience working in D.C., that when something's out of the White House, it is, and it's, it, it gets less attention. It's also even physical distance. I mean, literally, um, at one point, they took the Council of Economic Advisors and moved them out of the building next to the White House, the old executive mm -hmm. office building, and it lowered the influence of that body. I mean, it's really, it, it's physical proximity, it's, it's yeah. logistical proximity. It does matter. Hey, Jonathan Gruber, thank you very much. I hope, really quick, we got to go. We only have a minute left, but um, kind of dire predictions 
that uh, on the economy now with with people going out and spending, but wealthy people not spending at all, and that that's a problem, and blah blah blah. Are we going to be better pretty soon, Jonathan? I know it's a big question for twenty seconds. Um, you know, not uh, better in direction, yes, but uh, as I said last time, it's going to be a while until we're to, un, 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 until we're good. And I think the really thing nobody knows is when you know. You have to ask you and your friends, when are you going to a restaurant again? Yeah. You know, that's really sort of, sort of what it comes down to. I do think that one thing policymakers can do is they can really enforce the guidelines that make us feel more comfortable going to these places. Basically, when people in a restaurant don't wear a mask, yeah. it's not just that makes me sick. It gives me less confidence in going out in general. Yeah. There's a general benefit to making sure that these guidelines are followed by businesses around the Commonwealth. John, we have 15 seconds. Could you explain the universe to us? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. that's a legendary tool, Gawande, for yes. that one. <laughs> I, I, yeah, okay, I thought I'd sneak that in. Okay, thank you, John, you, so John. much. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you, you guys. Thank you. Boston Bye. Public Radio contributor John Gruber joins us regularly. He's the Ford Professor of Economics at MIT, where he's instrumental in creating both the Massachusetts Health Care Reform and the Affordable Care Act. His book, Jumpstarting America, How Breakthrough Science Can Revive Economic Growth and the American Dream. Up next, the Governor's Press Conference on Coronavirus. That's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. In a few minutes, we'll join Governor Baker for his daily coronavirus press conference. Then when President Trump seemed to stumble while walking, it didn't inspire a Saturday Night Live sketch a la Gerald Ford, but it did raise some concerns about his health. Whether or not the president is sick is a mystery, but should it be one? Any president's health is often a tightly held secret and only known to them and their closest confidence. Should that change? Medical ethicist Art Kaplan thinks so, and he'll join us in a couple of minutes to tell us why and how. Let's face it, farmers markets, organic kale, so pre-pandemic. <laughs> now, apparently, ho-hos, ding-dongs, nutter butters, all the rage. According to industry analysts, Oreos and every kind of junk food were flying off the shelves, too. So we'll open the lines and ask, have you swapped granola and yogurt for syrup and butter-drenched pancakes in the morning? That and more is ahead on Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. So it's deja vu all over again. Here's where I say in a couple of minutes, Governor Charlie Baker will do his daily coronavirus uh, press conference, which was scheduled for noon. He's usually a few minutes late, and as soon, today it's at the State House in the Gardner Auditorium. As soon as Governor Baker and his colleagues takes to the stage, we will take to the stage with him. You know, Marjorie, with your permission, we'll only have a few minutes to fill. Yes, Jim. I hope. Uh, I really, I, I told you earlier this morning, and I'm going to tell Art in a bit too, I really had a, a visceral reaction to the scenes from yesterday from the White House that exceeds what I've felt lately around the public health stuff. And, and let me just repeat if people just tuned in or missed it. First of all, it appears the vice president, uh, in addition to having this conference call, was it with the governor's reaction? Yeah where he's urging them essentially to mislead their constituents right. about the Don't state. Don't say mislead, say lie. Uh, coronavirus. <laughs> well, 
uh, whatever. Uh, he then goes to Iowa with no mask. This is the same guy. Didn't he apologize once he and did. say, I should have worn a mask yesterday and I yep. didn't? Well, obviously, he has been chastened by his boss. And he goes into this diner. He's like a foot away from people eating at a table. He's got no mask. Then you fast forward back to the White House. The president signing the executive order on police brutality, surrounded by law enforcement people, including, as you said, Sheriff Hodgson from Bristol County here in Massachusetts. Not one of them, not one of them has the decency or respect for the people back home to be wearing a mask or they're not only not standing six feet apart, they're not standing one inch apart. Yeah. Then we go out to the Rose Garden, and literally not only is nobody wearing a mask, these are staffers and other people, they're shaking hands like this happened six months ago. And I want to know if, if, uh, if, again, we don't have much time, at 877-301-8970, are other people having the reaction? Um, this is not an anti-Trump animus thing. We're in a public health crisis like most of us have not lived through in our lifetimes. And the leader or leaders of our country are intentionally flaunting their own government's directives to the American people to the great detriment of the American people. And it is driving me over the edge. I, 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 again, I mean, um, you know, the guy is n- not fit to lead and he's setting a terrible example. And Texas and Florida and Arizona are all having these cases and spiking. And Arizona's worried about their hospital capacity there. I mean, well, wait a second. But let's just get away from him. Not, do you think not one of those law enforcement people who were standing behind him said to themselves, if you're or wearing their a spouse, mask, if or you're their wearing... kid, or their grandparent, you know, I really should be wearing a mask here, but if... I can't because the president doesn't like masks. If you are wearing a mask in front of the president, then you are against the president. Right. I mean, that's, that's what it is. You're never Trumper. That's right. So Alex Azar can come to, uh, the uh, the health secretary can come to Massachusetts. Great point. And wear a mask the whole time he's here talking with Charlie Baker. He's got his mask on, but he can't wear one in front of the president. That's At least Fauci right. and Burks have the you-know-whats to wear masks when they were behind him. When we used to see them in the daily coronavirus briefings, we don't know where they are now. But I, I think generally that's that's the deal. If you wear a mask, then you are kowtowing to the chicken little libs. And if you're not wearing a mask, you're tough and you're with the president. I think that's what it's come down to. And for those who are okay with this and are troubled by what Marjorie and I are saying, you can give us a buzz at 877-301-897. I don't know if they're handing out masks in Tulsa on Saturday or urging they people. Are. To, they well, are. Okay, fine. So would you not agree that if there are 19,000 people in the box center that it if they hand out 19,000 masks, there are going to be thousands of people who are choosing not to wear them since the guy that came to see standing in the front of the room is not going to be wearing a mask. Most of those people, I mean, I know this from firsthand experience uh, from being in New Hampshire when Trump had a rally across the street on the eve of the New Hampshire primary. You walked over there. Yep. This skews older, which means more vulnerable people. Those who are not older are going to leave the rally, go home, probably visit a parent, or a grandparent. Well, we'll get back to this. Here is Governor Baker live from the State House, his daily coronavirus. So, good afternoon. Lieutenant Governor and I are here joined today by Secretary Tom Turco from Public Safety, members of the Black and Latino Legislative Caucus, to discuss legislation we're filing today an act to improve police officer standards and accountability and to improve training. But first, I'd like to give a quick update 
on COVID testing and hospitalization as we do pretty much every day. As of yesterday, there were another 6,500 additional individual tests and 195 newly reported positive tests. So far, over 700,000 individuals have been tested across the state, and the average positive test rate has dropped to below 3% to 2.6%. Around 1,000 people in the Commonwealth are hospitalized due to COVID. 244 people are currently in the ICU due to COVID, and hospitalizations for COVID are down over 70% since the middle of April. This progress is obviously encouraging and shows that we continue to move in the right direction. It also puts us on a good trajectory with respect to our gradual plans associated with reopening. Decisions to move to the next phase obviously remain rooted in the trends associated with the public health data, and our administration firmly believes that much of our progress has been the result of the behavior and vigilance of the people of Massachusetts. I want to thank you once again for continuing to do your part with respect to washing your hands, socially distancing, and wearing face coverings wherever you can't. These steps matter, and they play a critical role in slowing the spread of COVID. Now, today we're here to announce the filing of a bill to improve public safety and increase transparency and accountability in law enforcement. The legislation is a product of several months' worth of dialogue with members of the Black and Latino Legislative Caucus and with public safety officials across the Commonwealth. This is not the first time our regular meetings with the caucus has produced either a new program or a proposal. We meet with the caucus quarterly and believe this standing meeting has produced many positive results for the Commonwealth. We've worked with the caucus on corrections, criminal justice, addiction, housing, home ownership, state purchasing, construction and economic development, and public safety. And we're very grateful for their insight and their collaboration over the last five and a half years. The bill we're filing today is the first step in a process that we hope will create a package of reforms that accomplishes the goals that we all share. We began working with the caucus on this effort almost a year ago, largely because Massachusetts is one of only a very few states that does not have a statewide certification program for law enforcement. And we need one. The murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis at the hands of police officers made clear that now is the time to get this done. Mr. Floyd's death sparked outrage, sadness, and a fortified call for justice and equality from every corner of the United States. People have marched, gathered, and put forward policies and ideas to address the injustices that still clearly exist for communities of color everywhere. There are no easy answers, and improving how law enforcement is only one piece of this process. But I think we've put together a solid set of reforms that everyone, including the law enforcement community and the folks who are here with us today, can work on to advance this bill together. The legislation basically does three things. First, it creates a certification program for law enforcement officers that must be renewed every three years. This is consistent with how Massachusetts certifications and other professions, like medicine, education, social work, and a host of other highly skilled, critically important positions maintain excellence. It will also create a database of certified officers ensuring that those officers' training and conduct records are available to their current and future employers. Members of the public will also be able to access certain information about police officers, including their certification status. 
Second, it creates a process with community involvement for decertifying a police officer, taking that certification away from individuals who do not live up to their training or their oath. Officers who've been found to use a chokehold, for example, or other forms of excessive force, uses of force would be automatically decertified. An officer would also be automatically decertified if they fail to intervene if they witness a fellow officer violating these standards. And third, it creates incentives for advanced law enforcement training and education, focusing on de-escalation, community building, collaboration, human rights, and bias. Here in Massachusetts, we currently have a strong, forward-looking approach to training and education. And thanks in part to leaders like State Police Colonel Chris Mason and countless chiefs across Massachusetts, we in many ways are ahead of other states with respect to training and education. The big gap is we lack a certification program to instill day-to-day -day accountability and transparency in the system we have. This bill will create a more modern, more transparent, and more accountable system for law enforcement training. It will ensure that men and women who cannot live up to the high standards we expect them to uphold do not stay on the force. And it will give departments the tools that they need to build the community relationships that enable that trust. Now, I've had the pleasure of getting to know countless police officers that put on that uniform for all the right reasons and tragically have seen many lose their lives doing it. It's a hugely important and difficult job. And this bill is not about choosing sides and digging in. This bill is about giving the law enforcement community the training and the resources that they need to serve, which in turn yields high-caliber public servants for our communities. It will also enable us all, law enforcement, public officials, and especially the citizens of Massachusetts, to separate those out who protect and, those protect and serve from those who don't. The daily injustices that people of color experience are not addressed easily or quickly, and certainly not with a single piece of legislation. We have lots of work left to do. But I want to say thank you again to the caucus for your support and your input on many issues over the course of the last five and a half years, and especially on this one. And let me close by just saying the session ends on July 31st. It is critically important that by the time that session ends, we have a certification process that can stand up to the integrity, creativity, imagination, and aspirations of the people here in Massachusetts. Thank you. And with that, I want to turn the podium over to Lieutenant Governor. As you hear, Lieutenant Governor Karen Polito, uh, 89.7 WGBH, you're listening to this live. We are filing legislation to support public safety and create more transparency and accountability for law enforcement. The murder of George Floyd was a tragedy. It was wrong. It was an act of racism. We cannot and will not tolerate these injustices in our Commonwealth. It is evident that here on Beacon Hill and throughout Massachusetts and across our nation, now is the time to listen to learn and to make progress. There are many brave men and women in law enforcement that step up every day and answer the call to protect and serve all of us. This legislation will do more to support everyone, residents and law enforcement, as we move forward together. 
Our bill will ensure officers have access to additional tools, like advanced training for foreign language proficiency, advanced sexual assault and domestic violence response techniques, and de-escalation techniques. It will also help hold accountable and decertify bad actors that tarnish the reputation of our dedicated and honorable police officers. Most importantly, this legislation will do more to address the racial inequities that still exist across our country today. It builds upon our 2018 criminal justice reform law to develop in-service training modules for law enforcement focusing on bias-free policing and de-escalation techniques. We are also proposing a new committee called the Police Officer Standards and Accreditation Committee to facilitate joint law enforcement and civilian accountability. Together, we are hopeful that these steps will allow us to make progress here in Massachusetts. I want to thank the members of the Black and Latino Caucus and Representative Vieira for their collaboration on this bill and many other initiatives that the governor highlighted. I also want to thank Secretary Turco and his entire team for their hard work, their sincere efforts and commitment to listening to many stakeholders and for helping to prepare this legislation that we filed today. And we look forward to working with the caucus and our colleagues and partners in the legislature to get this bill through that process and back to the governor's office uh, to sign. It is now my honor uh, to introduce Representative Gonzalez and thank him for his strong leadership uh, on behalf of the caucus and on behalf of our Commonwealth. Thank you. This representative is the chair of the Black Thank and Latino Lieutenant Congress Governor, and Legislature, uh, with whom the Baker, governor said he has worked uh, quite Secretary closely. Secretary Turco, my colleagues in government, my colleagues from the Black and Latino Caucus. Many will say that um, we are here today because of the cries from Minneapolis. I say that we are here because of the protests and the cries from Minneapolis because of George Floyd's the death of George Floyd, Eric Gardner, Rodney King, and the cries from the slaves and the slave ships, in the slave ships, and the cries of our brothers and sisters of the Native American community before this country started. We are here today because the protests have been heard, and now it's time to answer the prayers. We must address the points the 10-point plan that the Black and Latino Caucus has identified a month ago. We are encouraged by today as a start in that right direction. We are moved by the commitment of the governor working with the caucus for some time now to address this issue. Today is the beginning of some candid an uncomfortable conversation. As Martin Luther King would say, we have some difficult days ahead. But great leadership is known with 45 days left to the deadline. We want to get this through this session and into the governor's desk and signed. We are confident from the commitment of the speaker 
to ban chokeholds, an independent, an, an independent body, and to do the duty to intervene and increase diversity. We are heartened by the Senate president initiating a working group to address the same issues, and for both of them who are committed to moving this expeditiously through the House and the Senate. The Black and Latino Caucus has a firm and strong commitment to addressing our 10-point plan. This is one issue of one of, of those 10 points. For a long time, we have been addressing race relations. Some colleagues that are not here today, one that is, Representative Russell Holmes. He has led the way on behalf of the caucus on fighting for standards of training, and the standards of training is about police training and support and addressing police misconduct, transparency, and accountability. He has led the way when the road has been bumpy and the visibility has not been clear. He has been the chair of this caucus in the past, and I can say without a doubt, he is a man of principle and committed to the issues that we have addressed here today. I thank him for his leadership in this issue and to work side and side with him and all my colleagues at the Black and Latino Caucus to make sure that we can work together with all parties involved, including the unions who we have met with individually, to make sure that we get this over the top by the end of this session. It is with great pleasure that I introduce next to the microphone the person that I call steadfast, committed, and dedicated. Tell him like it is, Representative Russell Holmes. This is Representative Russell Thank Holmes you, Representative from Boston, Gonzalez. who has um, been talking about I these issues long before George the thing Floyd. That he's had so much vigor about over the last week, and that is making sure that as we begin this conversation, we make sure we include the police unions who uh, have felt that for so long they have not been included. And it is a unique relationship because, quite frankly, it is one that has uh, been started in earnest under our new chair, on our chair. And he has been steadfast, and I really do appreciate the kind words, but appreciate his energy and his uh, fulfillment of really an idea about what we do when it comes to also the unions and not just what's happening in the building. My comments today are going to begin with um, actually the end of the State House News article yesterday, and I want to thank Katie for doing it because it begins with um, the words of an activist, uh, Jamal Crawford, who was on our panel on yesterday. And I'm going to begin with his words because I think they are reflective of so many things that so many of us have been thinking. This is his quote. It reads, I don't think that there's one civil bullet or pill for police reform as a total. It needs to encompass a bunch of stuff, said Jamal Crawford, who is the founder of the mass police reform. The climate is now, of course, I guess, that is what people would call or what we would call the come to Jesus moment. So where many of us have been out shouting in the desert for years and years, and it has fallen on deaf ears, and there's been a reluctance and even a pushback for it, I think now, because of the time, 
there's a tidal wave that we have to be smart to ride in. Jamal is absolutely correct. We have been shouting, absolutely screaming in the wilderness. And for so long, this bill sat and languished and was forgotten about. And so I call at this moment, I want to just thank many people who won't be on this stage today, but I'm going to call their names because they have been in the fight long before the unfortunate incidents that have begun here recently. Rep. Vieira, of course. I want to thank him. This is a bill that when we began, we began it as a bipartisan bill, one that was not going to be just Democrat or Republican. It was going to be a, a bill that we are doing because it's right. You saw, for those who participated yesterday, of course, the ACLU and Rasan Hall and his entire team over at the ACLU, Professor Goldman, who, of course, is thought of the most knowledgeable person on this topic and has been an incredible advisor to me, the Lawyers Committee, Ivan, Sophia, who was participating yesterday, NAACP, I cannot tell you the amount of conversations I've had with Tanisha. Uh, and her advocacy around this bill and the importance of this passing for years, shouting in the wilderness. And of course, if I'm talking about the NAACP, I have to talk about my constituent, the governor and I talked about, we are always still reps, uh, Cheryl Crawford <laughs> at the NAACP. Also, um, we delayed or asked the governor to re delay releasing this because we needed to have a broader conversation with just the community, not just the unions. And so, I can tell you uh, the community activists, such as Monica Cannon, James Mackey, uh, they had an event on Monday where there really was a thought that we're going to stop the protesting and coming to some common ground around what it is that we're demanding next. And what I was so blessed and thankful to hear is that their conversation was about the 10 points that the elected of color across the Commonwealth had advocated for. They advocated very strong for Representative Miranda's use of force, they activated, they were very strong around just making sure the pieces that we have around posts, and of course the structural racism uh, components are also included. But they've been out, they've been marching, and they've been heard. Also just want to uh, acknowledge Priscilla Flint, Brother Lowe, that entire group that they sent our dem their demands to us. We hear you. We are responding. We will continue to hear you. And then even last night, I can tell you, uh, I participated on a call around businesses, and black businesses, of course, have not participated wholeheartedly in PPP. So I want to just thank uh, Tito Jackson. I want to thank um, all the folks at uh, BECMA with Chagan and his crew around what do we do about businesses. And I was uh, very thankful to hear Quincy Miller last night saying that over at Eastern Bank, they're going to make sure that we black people still participate. There are still billions of dollars out there in PPP that we have not gotten, and we need to have the opportunity. So he did it last night, so I figured I would make sure everyone knew. If you're having a problem with PPP, Quincy said, uh, go to easternbank.com, and if you have a bigger problem, email him, qmiller at easternbank.com. We need to make sure that we get that part of this conversation started. And then finally, I... Um, can't help but to thank uh, for so many. They've called my the district I represent, the Bible Belt of Massachusetts. So, of course, I have to thank all the clergy 
uh, beginning with GBIO and again a constituent of mine, Beverly Williams, who's a constituent. But at the bottom of my hill where I live, past the borders, of course, Pastor Hammond, Pastor Dickinson, Pastor Hughes, and of course my minister, Brother Craigwell, who I minister, who's my minister and I hear every single day. So I, my comments are these. We have begun this, and I am thankful for a couple of folks who have called, uh, who are former legislators, to the chairman's point. I can recall when Trayvon Martin happened, uh, there was an action that we did as a protest on the House floor where we went, walked in with hoodies. And we had Rep. Rushing, Rep. Fox, Rep. Swan, Rep. Coakley Rivera, at the time Rep. Enriquez, but I've also received a phone call from Rep. Cavallo saying that this is what we started and we need to get it over the finish line. Just that simple. They may no longer be here, but rest assured they are equally as passionate as all the caucus members that are here today that they want this solved as well. And we come at a time where when you think about uh, black and Latinos, the, the post-COVID uh, crisis has shown us that essential workers have a different name. They're not just the folks who have all of the titles and the importances. We now have seen that our trash collectors, our nursing home attendants, our MBTA drivers, our grocery store workers, these are the folks that when the governor talks about we are fighting as a black and Latino caucus that we're fighting for every day. And then finally, the victims of violence, we hear you. Not just the Trayvon Martins, not just the Rodney Kings, as the chairman said. We have not forgotten DJ Henry and his family, obviously from here in Massachusetts. And of course, we have not forgotten the Floyd family or the Brooks family. Continue to email us, continue to call us, tweet us, Facebook, all of the things that you're doing, because there's no member of this caucus who does not hear you. None of us. And we are going to amplify your voices every single day. That is what we do. Do not think that you're not being heard. Do not think that as you protest, we are not there with you. Things that get measured get done. Just that simple. Just that simple. It is now time for us to measure our police officers. It is now time for us to do and hold them to the same account that we hold every other profession in the Commonwealth. Every other one. So as the chairman said, we've been in many conversations with the police, and in those conversations, They've said, wait, well, hey, in some ways we're different than barbers and electricians and other folks. But in every way their name, that they were different, it was clear to us that that's why they need to be held at a higher standard. How can we hold folks who are doing our nails and our hair at a lower standard than someone who can take my life? How can we hold someone who is a financial planner at a higher standard than someone who can take my civil liberties. This post-legislation uh, begins that process and that conversation. I am sick and tired of hearing constituents say, we asked for a badge number, and I didn't get it. Those days are over. They are coming where I will look at your name. I will see your badge number. 
I will then on my phone be able to look you up, understand your certifications, understand your training, and understand if you have done things that meet a requirement that I can see and understand your history. I envision a day where I get pulled over, because that will happen, and I will sit in that car like so many folks do, and we wait around for 15 minutes for them to come give us our ticket. They're reviewing our background, our driving records, but I will view theirs too. So while they're back there in that car sitting there chilling, making me wait because they want me to be penalized for whatever speeding or whatever it may be, I will make sure I understand that person as well. That is the standard that we're looking for. All of us go shopping. We go to Walmart. We, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say a name. We go to stores. And while we're at the stores, we look at some product and we say, hey, what's the most important thing or what should I pay because there's comp competition? I look forward to the day where the constituents I represent will be able to stand on the street and not feel as though they can be intimidated, not report on someone, and know that they know who you are. You are no longer hidden from us. You are not a person who I cannot investigate on my own. I don't need to come beg you through a four-year report to figure out who you are. That is the bill that we are proposing. That is the bill that um, I know we can pass. So I'm sure my statements were a little longer than what we expected, but let me just say this caucus isn't just on this bill. This caucus is not just on this bill. This is one of 10 things that we demand get passed. But beyond those 10, there are many other things that we are working on. We are just asking and demanding, quite frankly, moving forward on all pieces of legislation. We are at the front of a conversation. We are in every room. Sometimes people say, well, there are only 13 or 14 members of the caucus. We punch above all weight just like Massachusetts punches above its weight every single day. There's only one member of this caucus in the Senate. Give her all the direction, all the attention she needs to make sure she is able to drive not only this legislation, but all legislation that the, that the caucus is pushing. She can punch above her weight as well and we're demanding that you listen to her on the Senate side as well. Those are my comments, and um, just know I appreciate the governor and the lieutenant governor very much. Um, he did say we've been working on this for months. Why are we releasing this, and why is this the first thing out? It is the first thing out because I admire the fact that he was willing to do this when nobody else was. Just that simple. Just that simple. This is not an action that happened because this bill is not an action that happened because of the recent unfortunate incidents. This is a commitment he made to us as a caucus a year ago. He made it because it was right and not because of an emotional decision of an emotional moment. That's how I want leadership to look. Do what's right even when other folks are not willing to do it. And thank you, Governor, Lieutenant Governor, for doing that. Thank you. Let's start on topic. Questions for either of us or for the other folks who are here? Governor, there seems to be more 
Well, I guess what I would say is that um, there are a whole bunch of uh, bills that deal with this whole question around accountability, transparency, um, brutality. And, uh, and I would argue that ours is one of several. The one thing I would say about our bill is uh, it's based on a series of conversations that we've been having for a while with the caucus and with others. And it's a pretty comprehensive approach to establish a program. I mean, I admire the heck out of uh, Rep. Vieira and Rep. Holmes for hanging in there on this issue around uh, trying to create a commission, a process to get somewhere on putting a program in place when it comes to accreditation, certification, and decertification. Um, what my hope is is that uh, our bill at least can be used uh, as, a, as a jumping off point, a communication or a conversation starter uh, to make sure, because remember, we only have 45 days here until the end of the session, and a lot's got to happen between now and the 31st of July. That's why I ended my remarks by saying um, this really needs to get done in what is basically six weeks. And, um, and, and whether it's our bill or our bill modified or Rep. Miranda's bill or some of the other pieces of legislation or the negotiation that the caucus is currently having with other folks in law enforcement or some of the work that's being pursued by the task force in the Senate. Um, honestly, my goal here, my hope here is that um, between now and the end of this session, a piece of legislation that creates a certification and decertification program here in Massachusetts, along with some enhanced training modules that has civilian and law enforcement representation, will find its way to our desk and we'll be able to sign it and stand it up. I mean, the other thing about this is I really want to be able to stand this up in a relatively short period of time. I don't want to get, you know, what, what would really disappoint us, I think, is if we got something that created a process to get to the point where we create a program. I mean, I want a, I want a program. I want the legislature to take either what we filed or, or something else and give us, um, in the next six weeks, a program that we can stand up so that we can, in fact, uh, be aspirational about the way we think about training and the way we think about certification and the way we think about decertification and that we put in place a model that gives citizens a voice, gives law enforcement a voice, but gets us to the point where uh, people really believe that there's transparency and accountability in, in policing. Um, and, and I get the fact that it's six weeks from now. We were originally talking about trying to do this administratively and sort of urging people to participate and to make this happen. Um, I really think this is a moment, and it's a moment where this kind of legislation should get enacted. Governor, I I know. Uh, would you be pro extending sessions? Would you urge your legislative uh, colleagues to extend sessions if, if one of these pieces of legislation couldn't get done at that time? You know, the, um, the legislature's been pretty adamant about not letting its session run into the election season, and I understand why. I mean, I'm old enough to remember 
Um, I look around this room, there are a few other people who are probably old enough to remember what this process was like when you got into lame duck sessions. It wasn't pretty. Um, but honestly, you know, to get back to your point, there's been a lot of talk about this for a long time. There's been a lot of dialogue about this for a long time. There are models that can be borrowed um, or people can work off the draft of the legislation that we're submitting. We get the fact this is step one. But I really think this is something um, that ought to happen by the end of the session. The other thing I'll say is uh, we were on a call, Zoom, whatever you, what do you call those things, WebEx, whatever, um, with the caucus the other day. And, um, and one of the members, I can't remember which one, said, you know, Today we're talking about transparency and accountability in law enforcement, but that is the beginning of a discussion about a bunch of other things, and I agree with that. I mean, this is not the sort of thing that between now and the end of this session and the start of the next session, I want to start working on some other stuff so that when the legislature comes back in January, we have other stuff we can file um, to chase some of the other initiatives that are important here. I mean, as I said in my remarks, you know, we have an $80 million home ownership program that came about as a result of work that was done with the caucus. Um, pure and simple. And there are a bunch of different initiatives that are either works in progress or we're going to make an announcement soon on Boston State Hospital, which is going to come straight out of the dialogue that we had with the caucus about contracting and purchasing and uh, procurement. I mean, there are, there are a lot of other things we can and should be doing here. And... Um, but this one really needs to get done by the end of the session. Governor, in addition to um, chokeholds, are there any other police tactics specifically in your bill, for instance, no-knock, um, search warrants on drug cases, that kind of thing, which is in Nancy Pelosi's bill? So um, there's a list of about eight or nine, depending upon the account, um, what we would call mandatory decertifications. Um, chokehold is one of them. Uh, Duty to intervene is another, not intervening uh, in a particular incident. So I said in my remarks, when somebody violates what we consider to be standard practices, um, conviction of a felony, conviction of certain misdemeanors, um, violation of human rights, excessive force under a variety of scenarios, um, there's a bunch of them. And, and then there's a process for what we would call discretionary decertification, where you know a body of work or a, or a series of incidents could lead to the commission making a decision uh, to pursue a decertification hearing with respect to somebody. But that's exactly the sort of thing that um, I would fully expect the caucus and the legislature to engage on to figure out what they think the right list of discretionary and mandatory deserts should be. Have you talked to the unions about all this and how do they feel, and your state police, for instance? Well, the state police are actually in this. I mean. If you're, if you're a community law enforcement officer, if you're a, um, a college law enforcement officer, if you're a, a deputized uh, officer working in the community on behalf of the sheriff's department, if you're a state police officer, if you're a municipal police officer, all those folks are basically part of this training and certification regimen. But have they had input into the bill? Or do you expect pushback from the union? I can't ever remember filing a bill on anything where there wasn't agreement and disagreement, and I fully expect there will be on this one, too. But again, that's why it's so important that we not let the noise get in the way of the objective, which is to get this done by the end of the session. Governor, you're looking into a number of other things related to this conversation. The ACLU of Massachusetts 
want an end to qualified immunity for officers. Is that something that Massachusetts I would love to see that dealt with at the federal level, um, and I do know that there's a federal discussion going on right now with regard to that issue. Um, it's a harder issue to do on a state-by-state -state basis. Uh, it's based on federal law and federal constitutional policy. Um, I would love to see it get dealt with there. Unfortunately, I haven't read it yet, so not at this time. Go ahead. Question for Representative Holmes. Could, um, it was mentioned earlier that Massachusetts is one of the few states that doesn't have this type of certification program, but obviously in other states it hasn't deterred bad behavior from some of those bad apples. So if you could just speak to what this could actually do to folks here that's as significant as, as you feel it is. Um, I guess the easiest way I like to say it, we can yank your license. I think that the, a bad person, a person who is misbehaving, we should have the right to no longer allow you to come into our communities. Just that simple. One of the questions that came up yesterday in the, in the town hall was, do we have the number? They asked Professor Goldman, do we have the numbers for what happens in other states that do decertify? Have there been some proof that this is uh, a positive thing? And his answer was, no, we haven't done uh, the numbers and the data. But think about every profession, whether it be doctor, lawyer, whomever, removing as many people who are inappropriate in that profession is a positive thing. And so some of the challenges, quite frankly, that we were discussing right before we came out was what do we do about uh, the folks who are now already a part of uh, police? And uh, this bill, the way it's proposed today, would grandfather everyone in, and then we would look to have them go through the decertification process. But getting the folks who may have incidents on their background now, my advocacy to the governor, Lieutenant Governor and, and Secretary Turco was that if someone has an incident already that's in their background that would have precluded them from continuing to be a police officer and we've already grandfathered them in, let's try our best to make sure they are in that first round of certifications and recertifications to let them know that will never happen again, ever. You've been talking with the State Police Chiefs Association in Boston. I'm going to actually defer this one to the chairman. He's the one who's been having those conversations. Chair. Sure. Your I, I say one other thing about almost every one of these accreditation programs does not have a big civilian presence. All right. The proposal we're making, again, which came out of our conversations with the caucus, has seven folks from law enforcement and seven folks from the community. That's a really different governing model than you're going to see in any of these other um, states that have an existing uh, post program in place. The second thing uh, I would point out is in most of those certification programs, and they vary a bit from state to state, you don't have the sort of comprehensive list of automatic deserts uh, that we're proposing in our bill. Um, that is, in fact, different than most of the, than the way most of these others work. I do think what we tried to do was model it on the stuff we thought worked well in other states, but also made some pretty significant changes in terms of representation and rulemaking uh, to deal with what we thought were some of the limitations of the way these, these programs have been set up in other places. Chairman Gonzalez, I know uh, your caucus is meeting with the uh, Patrolman's Association here in Boston, the police, as well as the state police chiefs. What, what are some of the pushback that you've heard about what's in this? It's been honest, candid discussion, and uh, right now there's not pushback. There's uh, opportunity for us to both listen to each other and learn from the experiences from the boots on the ground uh, to better understand how we 
uh, if passed legislation, it impacts them. So I think it's been a great uh, opportunity for both sides to address the concerns that obviously we have with police misconduct. And I, I don't, I've never heard uh, pushback from any officer or union saying that they're against um, addressing some of the bad and misconduct that officers uh, have uh, been known to do. Well, obviously, I, I, if you saw our joint statement, I think they, they um, will have some concerns, but uh, some of them have addressed that they don't like the word licensing and, and, and they prefer the word certification. And apparently, to some degree, in some arenas of law enforcement, it's happening already in Massachusetts. Yeah, it's, um, it's basically, a, it's like the equivalent of a three-year certification, and you have requirements you have to meet every year to get in-service updates in your training and continuing education. The same way it would work as both uh, Chair Gonzalez and Representative Holmes said, as it would work for other um, certified or licensed professionals. So, I guess, how are you If you get decertified, you're done. Governor, uh, about the, um, the information that would be publicly available, can you elaborate on what information uh, a member of the public could get? And then secondly, uh, you know, you've all mentioned commitment to uh, not just this bill, but other steps. What would be the next part of the 10-point plan would be committed to working on with the caucus, uh, you know, assuming everything goes right and this bill is passed and ratified? Let's get this bill passed. <laughs> I mean, I really... I, 45 days. Several of the folks here mentioned the fact that that's a short period of time. It is. I would really like to make sure that by the 31st of July we have in place um, a credible, aspirational um, program with respect to how we handle certification and transparency uh, and decertification here in Massachusetts. You can go right ahead. I know you still have the open question about uh, what's public. Uh, I, we hear you. Um, but the timeline is this. We're anticipating the bill being released today. Literally at 2 o'clock today, the chair and the caucus will meet with uh, Claire Cronin, who's the chair of the judiciary, who the speaker has asked to, as I mentioned yesterday, uh, craft a bold um, piece of legislation. And we're, uh, just like today, demanding that we are the lead on that conversation. And so Claire... And the speaker, we're saying to them, do not put a pen to a paper until you've heard from us. And so we expect them to hear from us today. And then we're thankful that uh, the Senate president uh, appointed uh, as, as co-chair on the Senate side, uh, Senator Jane Diaz, on the working group on, on that side as well. We had a meeting with um, I, I Zoom, as the governor said, with the Senate president on uh, Monday, the chairman uh, orchestrated that, and we were clear to her as well. We expect that to go through the Senate and to go through our, our Senate member uh, advocating for this caucus. Obviously, we will still do Zoom meetings for all of us to have our voice, but our Senate member will represent us on that side as strongly as she can, working with our chairman. And so both Speaker and the Senate President um, have a more of what we would call an omnibus bill. They believe we're going to get in Rep. Miranda's piece. They believe they can get this done. They believe we can get this done. 
I would like them to prove it. And so I'm hoping that they are having rigorous conversations. I asked the Senate President, please make sure every step along the way you're talking to the governor. We do not want a pocket veto. We do not want a pocket amendment. We do not want a change at the end. We want the bill that we're asking for to be passed in the House and the Senate and with the governor's legislation. So we are working, as I said yesterday, trying to get to a timeline that is more July 20th. It gives us our 10 days to be able to have the governor review his bill, send back any amendments. We know that's tight, but the Senate president said she understands the timeline and we'll try our best to, to adhere to it as well. So um, I've been asking Secretary Turco that question for a little while. Um, he thinks he can get it all done within the next six months. Um, so um, there will be an enormous amount of negotiations, obviously, with the unions and what can be online immediately and all of those things. But um, I gave the example recently. My wife's a teacher. She can't show up in a room teaching English because you can go look up her name and say, wait a minute, you're a phys ed teacher. You're, not, you're in the wrong room. That's the level of transparency we're asking for, for every profession. It's really not that hard. It really isn't. Uh, and so we're at least, and what I think is important for people to understand is not all police officers are the same today. What do I mean by that? Uh, Boston in particular does somewhere in the neighborhood of 800 or so hours of training. Uh, there are other police uh, forces that unfortunately are doing three, maybe 400 hours of training. And you can just understand that me, as a black man, when I get pulled over in Boston, I want a well-trained officer. Please, let me also say that, because the chairman uh, makes to, likes to reinforce, we want the best officers we can possibly have. My neighborhood is not asking for uh, less police. We want the best, most trained officers we can possibly have, period. We want the best. And so when I get pulled over in Boston, or when I get pulled up in Lee, or when I get pulled over in any other bear or any other place in this commonwealth, that part-time officer looks exactly the same to me who has only 300 hours of training as a person who has 800. That needs to change. Everybody with a badge and a gun needs to have the same level of training, and everybody needs to understand that there are implicit bias lessons they need to have that may not have been, that surely would not have been part of a reduced program of 400 hours. There is a lesson around de-escalation that surely would not have been part of a program that you have reduced training. Unacceptable. Unacceptable. And so now we're going to, I've heard also yesterday on the question of, of this training, hey, at a time when so many folks are asking defund the police, we're looking to give the police more money. Well, I can, my answer to them is the same I'll give to you today, which is simply um, anyone who pulls me over, anyone with a badge and a gun, and typically almost, unfortunately, in this state, that's a white guy, any one of them who pulls me over needs to make sure that they have the appropriate training to understand my culture, who I am, and never again do I, should I be sitting on the sidewalk with my arms behind my back and handcuffed while you search my car and I can't see who you are. I want to know who you are. Would that you is like the, to see the percentage of police officers? Oh, come on. That's the next conversation. That is the easy... Reflective of the population. <laughs> so, thank you for asking the question. Let me just simply let you know that is part of the four demands that we have at the state level. Civil service. We just felt like as a caucus, we probably are not ready to take that fight on at the exact same time we're trying to take on the fight with, uh, with
with uh, trying to figure out the reforms in, in patrol. But the primary challenge we have around that, of course, is veterans. And um, we plan on probably being in another press conference of this nature at some point very soon. The speaker has committed to some uh, review of civil service that is absolutely one of our 10. And we absolutely, and one of the things that the chairman and I talked very, uh, uh, for quite some time with the police and the unions about was, uh, do you believe, and what I loved about the chairman asking them was he said to them, we've been asking or demanding more diversity in the police departments for years, years. We, we come up with our own ideas of civil service and the like and, and, and what can we do about language preference and all of those things. He asked them, he said, do you have an answer to diversity? I asked him, do you believe a more diverse police staff is a good police staff? Is that a better police staff? Someone who understands culture, language, and all of the other things. They said yes. And so now the caucus is asking them to come with your ideas. You come tell us how you think you can diversify. Because Governor and I, he and I have had this conversation. A state police that is 95% male and 90% white is unacceptable. Unacceptable. So we're coming that way, John. We just haven't gotten there on this bill. I'll give you an ex one follow-up to Representative Holmes's comments. Um, we have a bill that's currently pending before the legislature. Not to muddy the waters a little here, but it's a state police reform bill. And one of the things it has in it, in addition to a number of other administrative reforms, is the opportunity for the state police to create a cadet program. That cadet program would be a terrific tool in helping to diversify the state police. It's actually worked pretty well in the city of Boston. And, um, and the last class of cadets, um, because of some work that was done uh, by the colonel and his team, based on some guidance and advice we got from the caucus, was the most diverse class. It was a big one. It was also 240 uh, trainees who came out of that academy. That's almost twice the size of a typical class. Um, was the most diverse class I think ever, and we completely agree that, um, and so does the colonel, that uh, the state police needs to be more diverse, and not just um, not just around race and ethnicity, but also around gender. And um, I'd love to see that legislation we've got pending pass, uh, because it would, in fact, make it easier and uh, more possible for us to continue to diversify the state police. Yeah. yeah. So one of the other projects that the caucus has been leading when you talk about diversity has been a dashboard. Boston has a dashboard today where you can go and um, look to see at every department, every school, wherever you go, you can see the diversity, what people earn, things of that nature. Um, Sandra Borders uh, has been uh, Pastor Borders' wife, uh, again, my constituency, so got to be special. Um, they... Uh, has been leaving the program, and literally we had the colonel in uh, with one of the presentations. That's going to be stood up, I'm hoping, very soon. It's something we've been working on for months and months and months. We're literally, again, something that gets measured, gets done. We want to measure every single department in this, in this state, not just state police. But it is clear with diversity, the higher you go in, in the state, whatever it is, whatever job you get, you have, you are getting whiter and whiter and whiter, and that is unacceptable by the caucus, and we want that to be measured as well, and that should be released soon as well. Last question. Question for Miranda um, on uh, the use of a 
I think it's clear with the Black Latino Caucus and the electeds of color who joined us about a month ago that we don't see one intervention as the only intervention or the one pill, the silver bullet, um, to create change in Massachusetts. Our policing uh, history is 160 years old. The founding of this country is 400 plus years. Uh, and we know we have to do multiple things to make um, public safety more just and transform it. I believe strongly that use of force um, should also be standardized, and should we, we should be talking about what is excessive and deadly force, and removing some elements um, that we have not standardized in the Commonwealth. Massachusetts often leads the way. It's the first. I know I'm from Boston. We're the city of champions, and we want to make sure that uh, regardless of what is happening in other states in the country, that we go further, we do better, and we do right by the residents of this state. Yeah. No, we're going to deal with correctional officers through a different process because they don't actually, unless, no, they really don't operate in the community. This was really about creating a program model for all of the officers, either as part of their standing work or deputized, actually work in the community. And we think the correctional piece needs to be dealt with through a separate mechanism. Thank Thanks, you. everybody. Pardon me? Sure. We, um, we are currently discussing that with the Attorney General. Um, we haven't made a decision about how to pursue it because we've been talking to, uh, to the AG's office about it. Yeah, I guess what I would say is that the judge's decision basically said on almost every single one of those issues that people worry about, uh, that was not really where uh, he felt there were issues or concerns. His big issue was around whether or not uh, there needed to be a substation along with the compressor station, which DEP is a fundamental rule, felt the community wouldn't want and would be really expensive. Um, but that's the issue that we currently need to talk to the AG's office about and figure out how to pursue. Governor, amusement parks, any chance Say again? Amusement parks, based on the data you have, any chance those could be moved up in the bases into phase two, perhaps? So, um, with respect to moving more quickly on some of these initiatives as our data has improved, um, I mean, I understand the both the impatience and the anxiety that's associated with that. The lieutenant governor and I hear it pretty much every day. Um, but I would just say to people that the folks who went fast on reopening, um, in many parts of the country are now dealing with a second set of um, significant issues with respect to growth rates and their positive tests. Some of them are now testing uh, at a positive level that's above anything that they were dealing with previously. And, um, and while I get how impatient people can be about all this stuff, and I completely understand it, um, a big part of our success here in the Commonwealth has been people's willingness to change the way they live their lives and to respect the virus and to do the things that they have been doing around um, their own individual decision-making, around wearing a mask, um, socially distancing, hand-washing and hygiene and all the rest, and being patient about the reopening process. And, um, and I guess what I would say is we are going to continue to chase the data, but as the Lieutenant Governor and I have said on many occasions, our goal here is to create a sustained reopening. 
we know that it's likely that we're going to be dealing with this thing again in the fall, uh, which is why we've been so aggressive about building additional testing capacity and creating a pretty robust tracing program, which seems to be working. Um, but we're going we're gonna to continue to be careful and vigilant about the reopening process just because we think, based on all the evidence, not just here in Massachusetts but elsewhere, it's important that we respect the virus and, and not get too far ahead of ourselves. Say again. Because it's a um, it's a budget that's designed to dedicate state resources to what, in fact, are federally reimbursable expenses incurred under COVID-19 that we know are federally. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH. I think we're going to leave this. They're sort of getting in the weeds on budget issues, an important issue, the uh, food uh, uh Dollars, the $56 million the governor was talking about last week, but it's a budgetary thing. Uh, I'm going to give you a very, very brief summary here. While we thought this would be a coronavirus press conference, as it is most days, uh, the brief report on the coronavirus was a positive one, things trending in the right direction. The governor basically spent the rest of the time, he and his colleagues and a couple of state reps, talking about this uh, new legislation around police reform. We would join the vast majority of states that have a statewide certification for law enforcement officers, be reviewed every three years. There'd be a process for uh, uh, decertification that would automatically be triggered by certain actions, uh, uh, chokeholds, those sort of thing, advanced training on de-escalation, community policing. And I think really important on the transparency front, a database of officers about their training and their conduct records. However, he said some of it would be public, and what was never asked was, uh, will the conduct records be public? I assume we'll learn that in the next 24 hours. Marjorie, before we break, I have never seen, I've been around the State House for yep. decades. Yep. I have never seen a press conference by a governor totally taken over by a state rep. Yep. And the governor was totally respectful of him. But this was essentially Russell Holmes's press conference, great. who's been fighting for these reforms for years and years and years. Well, you know, he gave this great uh, anecdote. He said when he gets uh, pulled over, as yep. he will, likely all of us will, in some kind of traffic stop, uh, he talked about previously not being able to get asking for the badge number, not being able to get it. But he said while the police officer is back in his cruiser, kind of mm-hmm. hanging out, checking out his driving record. He wants to be able to check out that police yeah. officer's uh, record based on his badge. So I thought that was um, that was pretty good stuff from uh, Russell Holmes. He's a representative in Boston, by the way, yes, Mountain, ro- parts of Rosendale. Anyway, uh, we're going to talk up next to our uh, medical ethicist, Art Kaplan. Is the pandemic sending us back into the nutritional dark ages now that more of us are snacking on packaged foods. Art Kaplan joins us for that and more next on 89.7 WGBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. Is Operation Warp Speed warped to President Trump's <laughs> assurances that we'll have a coronavirus vaccine by the end of the year, conveniently in time for the presidential election, also mean... The U.S. runs the risk of approving a vaccine that doesn't work. 
Joining us online for his take on this, how pandemic snacking is turning the food pyramid on its head. We don't need art for that. I can speak to that. And other medical headlines is Art Kaplan. Art is a doctor's William F. and Virginia Connolly Mitty, uh, professor and founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU School of Medicine. Hello there, Art Kaplan. Hey, can you pass me another Reese's cup? Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. They're all gone, actually. <laughs> yeah, we have been stuffing ourselves. We'll get to all uh, that. But before we get to that and the, and the vaccine, Art Kaplan, I wanted to ask you about this rather surprising 6-3 decision by the United States Supreme Court yeah. uh, protecting LGBTQ job rights. Uh, uh, the health angle on this, as you know, that the, uh, administ- the Trump administration has been trying to prevent uh, to discriminate, basically, in health care against transgender people. So what is this going to mean for gay people and transgender people health-wise? Well, the Obama administration under Obamacare had rolled out protections for transgender and gay people, including that they get appropriate you know, care according to the uh, gender that they identified with, um, that they would get, you know, if they said, I'm a woman now, that they would get care aimed at women. Um, Trump has been fighting that. The administration has been trying to roll that back, and they filed a suit to do that. But now we have this decision that just came out from the Supreme Court, and I have to say I'm shocked um, that they did it. But they said, look, um, we're going to define sex, gender you identify with. They went away from biology, which is the basis of the Trump lawsuit in healthcare, and by the way, in other things like bathroom use and so on and said you should go uh, with the uh, um, way the person self-identifies in terms of assigning them to a particular uh, sex. There's nothing in that decision that directly will stop the Trump administration from trying to roll back the protections, but they're going to now have to contend with this Supreme Court decision recognizing, I'm going to put it simply, that sex is partly a matter of uh, choice and identification, not just pure biology. And down the road, I think it's going to overturn their efforts to get rid of these protections. I think it's a pretty good thing. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I uh, we were talking to John King from CNN about this yesterday, and I agree with you. The word sex that was relied upon by Gorsuch and his five colleagues in their shocking, not just shocking that that was the decision, but that it was six to three with Roberts and Gorsuch joining the four liberals relies on exactly what the uh, Health and Human Services Department relied on Friday when they, uh, uh, whatever the verb is, put out their final order uh, mm-hmm. discriminating mm-hmm. against uh, transgender people vis-a-vis health care. So I'm, I'm, I, mean, I hate to be unduly optimistic, but it seems to me as soon as there's a lawsuit challenging this, they're in pretty good shape. Well, I yeah, I agree. I, I don't think it's even optimism. I think it's just going to take time to litigate. You know, the, the Trump guys may not back down or pull their effort to uh, get rid of these protections. And and let me add, I think the protections made good sense. Um, It it seems appropriate to, if you're acting like a woman and transitioning to a different gender, then you're going to need, you know, the care appropriate to that. So I have no bone to pick about uh, uh, allowing those uh, rights and guarantees to be in place. But as you know, Jim, it'll take a while to litigate the thing back, right? Of course, it'll have to go up of and down and up and down. We well, you know uh, this is pure speculation on my part, but I'm uh, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, Neil Gorsuch is Catholic, and I like to think that part of the, and he wrote the lead uh, uh, opinion here. 
Pope Francis has been, even though the rules haven't changed, Catholics still discriminate against uh, uh, gays and lesbians, particularly these right-wing Catholics. But I like to think that his, that both Francis talking about how you have to be more inclusive and less exclusive and more welcoming people in, not throwing people out. Maybe it's possible that Neil Gorsuch has gotten on the train there with the most progressive uh, pope there's been in a long time. On yeah, he used to say the same own. things about Paul Ryan, if you remember. Do you remember that before Paul Ryan screwed poor people? Well, but I don't remember saying Paul Ryan was a good was a progressive Catholic. Well, Catholic. you don't know that Gorsuch was a progressive. Well, I don't Catholic. either. But he, he's a. Bi- I mean, we had a, the guy that you know that, that was a right wing Catholic before in the Supreme Court who made his positions clear. He's a new guy. I mean, maybe well, he right. is. Uh, more yeah, with his be. church on where the church Maybe. is moving, yes, which is toward acceptance. Uh, you know, and I have my bones to pick with the current pope. I wish he would revisit some of the roles of women. I wish he'd revisit yep. some of the contraceptive things. But you know what? He's a heck of a good moral leader. I mean, i got to give props here. He's He's been uh, in the right place on a lot of issues. He's trying to drag the church forward. I'm an admirer. I don't want to say a fan. It sounds like I'm a Pope groupie, but, you know, it's it's possible. And, you know, the flock listens, and they hear calls for inclusivity and so on. I loved what he had to say about homosexuality. Remember, he said, who am I to judge? Um, So it's possible, and I'd like to think that uh, his ethical influence has been powerful here. I agree with you, except I just want to say the who am I to judge was an aberrational moment. He has done virtually nothing uh, on uh, uh, on this whole it's, issue of of not just gays welcoming, but the whole sex abuse thing. We don't have to we, debate. Okay, Jim, the sex abuse thing. The sex abuse thing is a totally different issue. He's been lousy on that. I will agree with you. I think he's been compared to other popes, people before him. Okay, he fine. has been has been revolutionary. What okay, he said about so abortion. And about gays. Okay, and in uh, any case, by the way, despite yeah. Jim's obsessive perfectionism, yeah. I'll take the gains. I mean, I think he's been good. It, I yeah. still, I'm going to still be a fan and, um, and an admirer. I, I think he tries, and you know, I get the, I, I see where the flaws are, and I see where he's dragged his feet, and I know we got a lot of listeners who are going to say he hasn't done anything that makes me happy about the sex scandals in the church. I get it, but on many fronts, he's been pretty good. Okay, can we can we move on to some? I, I I don't know why this is, but this is a human thing. So I don't think I'm aberrational. You know, every night I sit on the couch and watch what uh, Trump and Pence are doing on coronavirus, and I sort of take is that it in, awake or asleep? I sort of take it in stride. <laughs> and for some reason, last night I thought I was going to explode. It starts with an audio tape recording of Pence speaking to the governors basically telling them to mislead their uh, constituents about the state of coronavirus. That was bad enough. But then the visuals. Donald Trump signs this executive order around uh, police brutality, surrounded by a bunch of cops and others, including our own Sheriff Hodgson from Bristol County, who none of whom have masks on, who are standing shoulder to shoulder. They then go out to the Rose Garden, where people are not only maskless after the president did his thing, but shaking hands, there's one guy in the whole damn crowd who is wearing masks. This is the most irresponsible health modeling I have ever seen in my lifetime. It is the biggest FU to the American people one can possibly imagine. And again, I don't know why I had this reaction last night as opposed to other nights, but it was nauseating. 
Okay, I'm done. Well, well, let me let me just say, uh, over the years, you know, I've uh, been battling weight, and I've had some success with that. But I decided no more battling. Um, I'm just throwing the scale away, and I'm going to feel better about myself. I won't measure anything. I'll know that I'm in good shape. That's what Trump and Pence are asking us yeah. to do with testing. They're basically right. saying, you know, the way to uh, conquer this pandemic, let's ignore it. Let's hide it. Let's not measure it. Let's pretend it's not out there. So that's 75% toward the most irresponsible posture I can think of. And they continue to flout basic rules. I mean, I've tried to say, you know, when we've talked before, all right, if we're going to come out and we're going to uh, just sort of fling the doors open to uh, tattoo parlors and, you know, gatherings on the boardwalk to drink and going back to work and everything, then let's mask and let's socially distance and let's keep our hand uh, washed nearby and let's not be spitting and on and on. They do none of it. I think you're right, Jim. It is basically saying, uh, look, I'm going to get reelected. I'm going to restore things to normal by lying, deceiving, and behaving in ways inconsistent with being in the middle of a plague. And if you die, well, you know, that's too bad. Good luck in Tulsa, I should say, Saturday. You know. Uh, By the uh, way, did you see the uh, some of the officials in Tulsa trying to get him to at least go outside? Oh, the go- some of the Which, officials, yeah. the governor, the Republican yeah, governor, yeah. has asked him to go outside, I and he won't. I don't get that part. I don't know why you wouldn't go outside, if not just to save yourself a political problem, should lots of people Because he doesn't take sick. anybody's advice. doesn't matter whether it's good yeah. or what. It, 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 nothing that anybody tells him does this guy do unless it helps him. I mean, it's just... Well, I mean, well it would help him. It's, it's I all think image, it right? So you can sit shoulder to shoulder and we can have the rallies. That's a throwback to the good old days. And that's the image he wants to uh, send out that everything's good. Things are good, you know. We we're not counting anymore, and uh, you can go wherever you want, including my rally. Um, it does seem to me in a close election, killing his own supporters might not be a smart <laughs> approach, but okay. Yeah, that's probably axiomatic. That's probably true. So let's talk about you know sort of hostility, outright hostility to helping battle the coronavirus, is exemplified by this church in Northern Cal- California. Um, where one of their parishioners tested positive for COVID-19. Tell us what happened. So the church basically was under orders to not do uh, gatherings, you know, large numbers in small spaces, which is very smart. Um, Again, you kind of wonder why isn't the church having outdoor ceremonies or doing ceremonies in their cars. And then the state said, look, we've got a positive case from people who went to that ceremony, we want to uh, trace, contact trace, and see who else might have been exposed and so on. And that church fought them all the way. And that is unchristian, as long as we're in the middle of popes and uh, religious matters. You can't sacrifice the people who come to your church and say, nope, nope, nope. First of all, we're going to meet indoors. And second of all, I'm not going to do any precautions. And then if anybody gets infected, I'm not going to make it easy for you to figure out yeah. who might have been exposed. It's Crazy. just not responsible. It's uncaring. I, I don't understand. I'm going to say it again. It's unchristian. Yeah. You know, can I ask, I ask about contact tracing, which I'm embarrassed to say I'd heard virtually nothing about. I mean, in passing, uh, 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 we've had Paul Farmer on a couple of times from Partners in Health in the last month or two. And obviously Partners in Health are, is the partner of the state of Massachusetts in the contact mm-hmm. tracing here. 
And, you know, even if you're not in this pitched battle, us against them kind of thing, there is this feeling in America, uh, and I support it, that, uh, you know, be careful about how much you tell your government, to a point, I mean. And I have to say, I, I think the job is really hard. And I'm not defending what's, what you guys were describing from Northern California, but I understand this reluctance, uh, uh, despite common sense, to tell somebody information uh, about your health, about people you came into contact mm -hmm. with. I mean, it, it, you understand what I'm saying? I'm, I support the I concept, but I understand the concerns is what I'm trying I to say. I do, except here's the history. We've been contact tracing for child abuse, elder abuse, syphilis, yeah. gonorrhea, and AIDS. And who has been compromised, so to speak, as an innocent because somebody showed up and said, you may have been exposed to HIV, who are your partners, I'm going to maintain your privacy, but I do want to warn you, or maybe you want to get on some meds as they appeared. There's a whole history of contact tracing. Not like we just started it yesterday, and it's been very respectful yeah. of you know privacy and confidentiality. The public health people know how to do it. They've been doing it for a long time for highly stigmatized diseases and crimes, you know, so... I'm not moved. I mean, I get the distrust. I, I, it's affecting people who never, you know, perhaps were subject to some of these contact tracing things. But look, if you really want to get freedom, contact tracing by identifying who's been infected and who they've exposed, boy, that cuts back a lot in the need to quarantine everybody. No, you're totally right. You're totally right. We're talking to Art Kaplan, our medical ethicist. Art, <clears throat> earlier this morning we talked with John Gruber, our, our MIT economist, about our not just vaccines, but repurposing these generic drugs for therapies. Mark, you don't want me to comment on economists. <laughs> no, I, I don't. Mean, I gave the Pope a break, but come on, okay. economists? <laughs> but, but I want to talk to you about vaccines from the perspective of rushing uh, vaccines. There's some fear that we might go helter-skelter into this and not get the right vaccines. No, oh, I am so freaked out about this. Uh, we're going to come back to this during the summer because what Trump also wants to do, in addition to running around without a mask and, you know, embracing everybody he comes near and so forth and bad role modeling, is he has said, we will have a vaccine. I'm moving at warp speed, right? That's his warp speed language. And what he's basically saying is, don't worry about anything by, I don't know, October, November, we'll vaccinate our way out of this thing. So the public is out there, and what they hear is warp speed, race, yeah. accelerate, and that starts to make people nervous. Like, are you cutting corners? Look, I'm a big pro-vaccine guy. Everybody who listens to me talk on our show knows that. I mean, I'm not about getting vaccinated, but I understand there's a lot of hesitancy and worry. There's a lot of Internet chatter that undermines trust in vaccination. If you suggest, Here's what he should be saying. We're going to go warp speed to a safe vaccine. We're in a race to develop a safe vaccine. If he gets to uh, behind in the polls and we're in October, what I am terrified about is he'll pull an October surprise I and say, totally hey, agree. got enough evidence, put that vaccine out there, saved y'all, things are good. Um, and that would ruin not only the acceptance of that vaccine, but it might ruin acceptance of vaccination for a long time because either the thing isn't safe or it doesn't work very well. Or, you know, people just say uh, they cut corners and I'm not going near that stuff. So you can't, you can't do that. I've said 
no deviation from the standard way we test vaccines. You can't do anything other than, you know, normally we test them on 30,000 people before you get approval from the FDA. That's the standard I want. I don't want to hear about warp speed. Did you hear yesterday, both you guys, that Fauci has not spoken to Trump yes, in two weeks? I know. I mean, really? I, I wish he'd just go on news programs and, and well, talk you, about I'm with you, as you I know. haven't seen him much there either. I, I, I keep saying, and I'm going to say it again, I think it's time for him and others to resign from that yeah. ridiculous so advisory we. committee. I, so I, I'm we. with you, and he's an older guy. He probably has, he might, you know, have the savings of the pension or whatever. He can afford to do it, just quit his job and become a, a spokesperson. Hey, listen, he can keep his job at the NIH. I don't, that's fine with me. Just get off that committee yeah. that seems yeah. to be held hostage, I don't know, in a in a barn in Nova Scotia? I mean, where are these people? Okay, let's move on to something kind of fun. This is our medical ethicist, our captain we're talking to. Apparently, during the pandemic, our kitchen has turned into one huge vending machine. We're spending all day. That's a great line. (laughs) Eating Oreos, frozen waffles, pancakes, French toast, big Newtons. (laughs) Multiballs. Yeah, well... I think I think we sort of are. I actually bought whipped cream last night, like real whipped cream last night at the supermarket, and <laughs> douse on blueberries with lots of sugar. <laughs> but it, what, what, is this happening? You know, by the way, I should say, when I read this piece, which I loved, and we're going to talk to listeners about it in a little while and see if this is the direction their eating habits while they've been locked in have gone in. I'm not doing junk food so much, Marjorie and Art, but I have to say I did a calculation in anticipation mm-hmm. of talking about this today. On average, I eat one-third of a cow every single day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, the, I had, I had e- eaten less meat over the last years, in part because of our listeners are great on the subject, and it's convinced me. But I, am a, I cannot stuff enough meat in my face fast enough. Why is this, Art? I know you're not a shrink, but why is this? So I think a couple of things are going on. And let me add, I have no evidence for what I'm about to say. Beautiful. But it won't stop me in this instance. First, I think there's more time to cook. Yeah. Our meals have expanded in this house. Uh, We have more dishes. We're just making more stuff. Yeah. Um, So the meals are getting bigger because people say, gee, it's 5 o'clock. Can we start cooking now? (laughs) You know, second, (laughs) it's one of the things we look forward to now. Amen. Yes. Social whatever, big event, the dinner. Can't say it works for breakfast, but boy, dinner time and, you know, we also want to add in a uh, dessert period. Ice cream has exactly. been appearing in my oh. house more than ever when I sit down to watch the uh, you know, Celtics-Lakers series from 1984. <laughs> that isn't quite as rewarding as, without some ice cream. So I think that's happening. And then I do think people are kind of looking for comfort just in yeah. hard times. So, you know, out comes the baked beans and... Those those foods that make us fat uh, are tasty and desirable for a reason. <laughs> They're full of sugar and they are full of uh, fats, and you know they taste good. Uh, and I made that crack about malted balls. I haven't eaten malted balls <laughs> in thirty malted years. Balls. <laughs> uh, I go to the CVS to get a prescription the other day, and there's this big I don't know box of malted balls, and Why I bought not? the darn thing. So I'm guilty. I did it. So, Art, here's, but the key question, see, I, I'm sort of self-forgiving during the pandemic, which I'm ordinarily not. I'm much more self-critical about my health habits than I am now. But we're going to talk to our Simon Montgomery, the great naturalist, later in the show about how you transition with your pet, who is now used to you spending 24 hours a day with it, mm. or him or her, and then when you actually yeah. go back to work. How do you, are, is this, are these eating habits likely, the bad eating habits, 
likely to stay or are we likely to go back to the I mean, can, I mean, two thirds uh, of America know, I, is overweight, so it's not exactly like we're healthy. But uh, <laughs> right. well, uh, but well, are we about say, to get healthier when this is over, or no? Well, let me say first of all, there is no being happier about uh, this COVID plague than my dog. <laughs> um, every minute she's here right now, she's getting attention like she never did. Um, she thinks this is the most wondrous thing that's ever happened so dogs everywhere cats i guess too although a little less social <clears throat> they they're they're very thrilled about um the plague they, they it has brought them together with us and i'm sure our naturalist friend will agree diet habits are tough to break you know once you start doing it you got to wean yourself off mm -hmm. if we get back to work and if we get back to normal lifestyle then i think It'll be a little easier to do it because, again, we won't have all that time to make nine-course meals. And yeah. We won't yeah. be sitting around eating for three hours every evening, which is what is sort of happening in my house. So I think some of it will go away. But, you know, it's going to be slow. I, I do think that's another unintended consequence of uh, being stuck with a plague. You put off health care. Other conditions don't get paid attention to. And then, you know, you adjust your behavior so that you get a little more pleasure in giving it up hard. hard. So you think it's a mistake. I don't want to belabor this. You think it's a mistake. I'm now raising cattle in my backyard. Is that, <laughs> is that, is that something I... Oh, way, I bet that meat is unbelievable, truth. Jim. So fresh. <laughs> hey, Art, before you go, uh, a topic we've discussed with you about a million times, we discussed with uh, John King yesterday, and we actually cited you in our constant conversations with you, Art Kaplan, about how we don't know really what the health of the candidates from the major parties are when we vote for one of them. Come, hold, uh, hold on a minute. I have to uh, use this phone cord to hang myself. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> November. <laughs> we don't know when Donald Trump couldn't raise the glass to his hand the other day without yeah. the help from his left hand when he walked down the ramp where he was obviously Shuffling. unsteady. What I said to John King, which he said politely was very unrealistic, is what I think I've said to you in the past. Why can't Congress pass a law that does not apply to the sitting president, that only goes into effect when he is out of office, that says an independent commissioner, whatever the hell you've suggested in the past. And John mm -hmm. said, again, politely, it's not even remotely on the radar. Why do we not care about whether or not a president, Trump or anybody, is physically and mentally fit to be the commander-in-chief in the United States? 74 and 78? No independent physical by an independent Great team? Point remains nuts just, and it's been a bad idea since franklin delano roosevelt hit his polio great point yeah. john f kennedy never admitted to his addison's disease woodrow wilson had a stroke and the country was run by his wife, his wife for, you know yeah. not like we don't have a history of them covering up even if you don't want to make fun of uh trump's doctor's old letter when he was running saying he was the healthiest human specimen that's on earth that's great um so uh, politicians don't want to do it, and we don't demand it. It's a pretty simple path. King is right. We're never going to get this uh, unless we, the people, sort of finally say in a bipartisan way, we don't care. Just have an independent committee assess the president and the vice president and the candidates for that, and we'll stop there. You don't even have to worry senators and uh, representatives. We're not going to extend. Just go that far. Politicians hate it. They just hate it. 
And unless we drive them to do it, we're never going to get there. Do I think we're ever going to get there? I don't. But it leaves us worrying constantly. Is the guy we're reelecting, you know, going to die of some underlying condition two months after we elect them? You know, before you go, I know we're out of time, but you, the, the point you made is so obvious and true. We're going to vote for a 74-year-old or a 78-year-old man mm-hmm. to be president of the United States and have absolutely no idea except superficially what the real quality of their health is. We, shame on us, by the way. I mean, it's just we, yep. are, we are pathetic. In any and case, uh, elected to what? The most stressful exactly, job exactly. on yeah. earth. It's not like we're electing them, you know to go out and uh, do uh, uh, work in the backyard to help the tomatoes. Yeah, or raise the cattle. Or okay. raising the cattle. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Art, it's a pleasure, Art, as always. Thank you very much, Art Kaplan. Thanks. Art Kaplan joins us every week. He's the doctors William Meth and Virginia Comedy Media Professor and founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU School of Medicine. Uh, Art, thanks again. Up next, Cy Montgomery joins us with advice in helping our dogs and cats cope when this nightmare is finally over, we're finally back to work, but our dearest pets will be all alone again, naturally. Cy Montgomery will tell us what to do next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Marjorie Egan. Join us online uh, for our monthly edition of the Afternoon Zoo. It's a conversation at the intersection of animal and human behavior. It's hard to tell them apart some days. It's Cy Montgomery. Cy is a journalist, naturalist, and a BPR contributor. Her latest book is The Magnificent Migration on Safari with Africa's Last Great Herd. Cy, great to talk to you. Oh, great to be back. Oh, so many things to talk to you about today. <laughs> but as always, but let's let's start with your advice on what we do because it is turtle nesting season. What we do if we spot a turtle in the road, Sai Montgomery? Yes, well, there's there's a great likelihood you are going to spot them right now. This is the season that they are leaving the ponds and the forests and going to dig a nest. So it's essential that they get to where they're going. So don't pick up the turtle and turn it around and expect it to just go back to the wetland. You have to take the turtle to the place it's going. If you were driving to work and somebody picked you up and took you home, you would just leave your house and then go back to work. <laughs> so you're not point. doing the turtle any, any good if you don't let the turtle go in the direction that it's going. Um, now, a lot of the turtles that we're likely to see are snapping turtles, and people are deathly afraid of snapping turtles. Snapping turtles, however, are generally real sweethearts, and the bigger ones are actually less likely to bite. And I know this because I've been having the privilege of working with the Turtle Rescue League right in Massachusetts, and they're getting calls all the time. There's a snapping turtle in my yard, and they get calls from, like, Wisconsin. I don't know what they think they're going to do, but they initially say, well, the good news is that the snapping turtle is not going to eat your children. Yeah, <laughs> um, they they usually aren't gonna bite you, and there's ways of getting these guys across safely without your even actually touching the turtle. But 
frequently you can just pick the turtle up and move it. Um, I should, probably shouldn't say that on the radio because somebody's going to do it the wrong way. Don't pick them up by the tail. That's really bad for them. It can break their spine. But probably the safest thing you can do if you want to, to get it across, if you aren't able to actually escort and wait, is if you have a, a box in your car, a paper, you know, a, a cardboard box, break it down, get the turtle to walk onto the box, and then drag the, the piece of cardboard backwards to the direction the turtle is going, turn him around so that he's still going in the right direction, and let him walk off, and then you never have to touch him. There's one other option. You can just call Cy on the phone and have her come down and move the turtle. <laughs> That's right. I'll well, you know, you. you can use the floor mat in your car also for this, for this purpose. Yeah. You know, I have um, a quick question of, about turtles, because you mentioned, or, or one of the stories I read in, t- talk, in anticipation of your coming today, was sometimes you'll see a crack in the turtle shell and you assume it's dead. And I remember being a kid with, with a turtle washed up near where I lived in the summer with a cracked shell. And I thought it was dead. I thought it had been hit by a propeller of a boat. And oh, yeah. then I saw it look, walk back into the water with this cracked shell. Yes, it's amazing what they can survive. And it's also amazing that with human help, what they can, what they can survive. At the Turtle Rescue League, they have a really fabulous turtle hospital. And I have seen turtles cracked in half that they have been able to heal. So wow. if you see a turtle who is injured, immediately go and call Turtle Rescue League or call your animal control officer, and they will call Turtle Rescue League or the nearest animal rehabilitator. It's really important that you do it right away, though, because if the wound gets infected or if the wound gets maggots in it, it makes it a lot harder to to heal this turtle. But the great thing is, if you heal a turtle, even if that animal has to be in the turtle hospital for two years or five years, I've even heard of, of turtles who are in the hospital for eight years, they can be released and lay eggs for another 50 years. So... It's a great thing to be able to heal a turtle. And right now, when everything seems broken, it's fantastic exactly. to be able to have a hand in putting the world back together. One That's beautifully put, actually, and it's so true. That's why we love talking to you, actually, among other reasons. Oh, Before so we sweet. leave this quickly, can a turtle heal, heal itself if a shell is broken? or, or are they Sometimes doomed? they can. Um, sometimes you will see turtles. I've frequently seen turtles with um, healed uh, shell fractures. I've seen turtle just a couple of weeks ago. I saw a wood turtle on our street, a little tiny road, who was missing all the fingers of her left hand. And it was all healed. And another person who works, I think it was Natasha Nowick, who um, is one of the main people at the Turtle Rescue League, she saw a turtle pushing itself across the street. Its front legs were absent. They had been bitten off by a raccoon or something. And healed, and this animal was walking along with only two legs and obviously still enjoying its life and basking and eating, and, and the, the wound had healed perfectly. Simply. We're talking to Cy Montgomery. So, Cy, the question that either is on or should be on the minds of virtually everybody listening to the show, uh, not only many of whom have pets, but uh, apparently many more have pets than had pets at the beginning of the pandemic, (laughs) which I think is a good thing, assuming they're treating them well, is what do you do when your animal becomes used to 24-hour-a-day attention 
and then all of a sudden you have to go return to at least semi-normal existence. I did read one thing. I did read that do- this is true. The dogs like reggae music, so that's one thing you can do. <laughs> Honestly, do. I read this that I, honest to God, that you can play reggae music at least for some. But I'm serious. How do you transition your dog, your cat, your whatever from 24/7 attention to more normal sort of isolation, at least daytime isolation? Well, the secret is very slowly if you can do it. Um, just like when you get your child or your puppy to put up with your being gone out of their sight for just a few minutes, you've got to do this literally, you know, leave, leave the house for like five seconds and then come right back. And then the next time, leave the house for 10 seconds and come right back. Oh. But don't just leave. Do everything that you would normally do if you were going to leave. Pick up your car keys. Take your your um, your briefcase, um, put on your coat or whatever it is you're going to do, and do it as slowly as possible. Leave some treats for them. Make sure that they have a safe place that they like, which doesn't necessarily mean a place with a window, by the way. We think that animals love to look out the window and dogs barking at cars and joggers and everything going by, that it's just playtime for them. But sometimes this agitates the animal and their safe space may be a place that does not have a view. And make a plan for entertaining your dog when you're home as well as when you're away. You might not have as much time to walk your dog, but in addition to giving him a short walk, you might teach him a new trick. They actually love that. They love learning a new a new trick. Um, you might decide to take them for a drive someplace that they haven't been before, so it's stimulating. There's all kinds of cool puzzle toys that you can give to your dog. What do you mean? Like what? What, what, what Oh, they'll try to figure out how to get a treat out of of a a ball or um, uh, there's actually ones that you have to move a lever with your paw in order to release the treat. Um, If you look up puzzle toys on the Internet, these things will appear. Um, Or you can make puzzle toys pretty easily, and there's instructions for these. Some of them would just involve, you know, taking a muffin tin and putting tennis balls over the six muffins, and one of them has a a treat under it. And that's entertaining for them. Because there's boredom and then there's stress. Um, When when dogs and and cats do things like, you know, they they leave a a little present on your bed, If if it's a decapitated mouse, that's a present for you. But I'm talking about if they, like, defecate or urinate on your bed, for example. And everyone gets very angry at that. Oddly, people don't like to have a big pile of poop on their pillow. <laughs> but it's not anger. They're not doing it to get back at you. Everybody gets so mad. It's, oh, my dog got so mad he pooped on my pillow. And that's not it at all. When they, when they defecate and urinate in the house frequently, it's because... They lose control of their bladder and yeah. bowels because they're upset yeah. the same oh, way God. people do. Um, so, and where, why were they on your bed when this happened? Because they were seeking the comforting smell of mm. where you sleep. Oh, God. So that kind of, I hope that makes people feel more tenderly instead of angry at their animals when they do something like this. And just take a little extra time to figure out how to prepare them, just like you would your 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 child mm-hmm. or, or, or a young puppy. Did you ever play Bob Marley for your dog or no? <laughs> you know what? I have looked into what, what kind of music dogs like. Um, it's known what music cats like, and it's because their voices are at a different um, 
pitch than ours, and they, they like high-pitch stuff. They do? But dogs love the same music that we love because it means it makes me think of my person. Oh. Well, speaking of your person, Simon Montgomery, before we leave this topic. Oh, I have one uh, question, by the way, too. I did read, uh, I seriously read that, I assume they meant it seriously, a lot of dogs like reggae music. But in addition, how about playing an audio book or something where there's a voice? So there's a human yeah, voice like in your house. Does that work or no? Yeah, a lot of dogs like to have a human voice. A lot of dogs and cats like having the television on mm-hmm. so that they're not completely lonely. I mean, some of them, I think, it would drive them crazy. A lot of humans leave the, the um when they're lonely, they leave the radio or television on. A lot of humans want to go to sleep. In fact, I know of one that's in my bed every night, <laughs> likes to go to sleep listening to the radio. And I'm like, oh, my God, there's like strangers murmuring in my <laughs> bed. I don't like this at all. It's, it's Simon Montgomery, if, if you mentioned this before, I apologize, but um, the building up, you know, leading for an hour a day, then two hours a day, three hours yeah, a day. Yeah, more like five seconds and then ten seconds. Yeah, so, 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 so just five seconds, not, not, not the... And build uh, it, and build it up, is what she's and, saying. But build it up yeah. from the five seconds. Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. Because a lot of people I know that, that they'll be gone eight hours a day, but they'll have a dog walker come in or something like that in the middle of the day. Yeah, um, that's a great idea, yeah. because then your dog has something fun to do in the middle of the day. Um, just just like people, uh, my my friend Matt Patterson uh, had a horrible accident, and his, his leg was wrecked, and he couldn't stand up and couldn't go anywhere, and all day long, he looked forward to the, to the moment his wife would come home, and they would go out for a drive for coffee. It became this huge thing, mm. and that's the same for your, for your dog. It's like, oh, my gosh, someone's going to come in and give me a walk, or, oh, my gosh, someone's going to come in and, and pet me for five minutes. Okay, we're talking to Sam Montgomery, our animal expert here. So... Um, tell us about these pollen-starved bumblebees. This is unbelievable. Yeah, first of all, oh, yeah. why are they pollen-starved? And second, what are they doing about it? This is so cool. I just love this. There was a Swiss study, this was in science, of buff, buff-tailed bumblebees, which I just love. It's the most common species in Europe. And they were doing an unrelated experiment. And notice bumblebees kind of nipping the leaves of certain plants, and they wondered why this was. So they did an experiment. They took half of the, a group of bumblebees and starved them of pollen for three days. The other group had plenty of pollen to eat. So after the three days, they released them onto tomato and black mustard plants that hadn't begun to flower. Well, the starved bees immediately bit these little half-moon nibbles into the leaves, but did not eat the leaves or carry them back to the nest. What was going on? Well, what went on was a few days later, the non-flowering plants began to flower when they had been bitten by the bees. The bees figured out a way to cause the plants to bloom earlier so that they could get nectar. And that wow. is amazing. They were gardening. This was like a, a an this agricultural technique, a horticultural technique that they were using. How does a bumblebee? I mean, what figured is, that what, out? How do, exactly? How do they know? I, I know they know. There's well, I don't know if I know they know. They're they're starving. They know they're not getting enough to eat. But how do they know that that act will cause a consequence that'll provide 
food so- sooner for them. I mean, it's unbelievable. See, this amazes me. It it clearly it implies forethought, doesn't it? Yes, it does they're indeed. doing something today specifically to alter their future. But these are not the only insects that do this. And one that comes to mind is Amazonian leaf-cutting ants. What are they They doing? gather leaves, and I've seen this in the Amazon. You'll, you'll see this like little forest of leaves coursing forward like a rivulet on the forest floor. And it's, it's ants carrying little parasols of clipped leaves, and they carry it into their nest where it becomes the scaffolding for a fungus garden. And the fungus is a species that is found nowhere else in nature other than these ant nests. They are gardening. Oh, my goodness. Why, why are they that starving? Is, is there some climate change thing going on here? Or well, what? It, I think generally in, in nature, you know, the rains are late or, um, there, there's, or it's too cold. or There's lots of, of different things that would cause uh, the bees to, to need... Uh, pollen when it isn't there. I would reckon there would be more of it now with all the, the climate change that's going on. But in the experiment, um, the, the Swiss researchers actually purposely starved the bees in captivity and then let them go. But yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe this is going to be awful handy and other bees are going to notice how to do this. It's, it's so remarkable to see how animals culturally transmit behaviors in response to stresses. Um, this, is, this has been seen in a lot, of, a lot of different species, but I don't know if they can catch up with us at the rate we're destroying everything. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, l- l- let's talk about something I'd never heard about. It sounds really cool. This Firefly Festival. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. I had no idea. There, there are several of them. They're huge, too. I now want to go, but unfortunately, they're well, canceled. unfortunately for people, they're not yeah. having them. In the, in the Great Smokies, um, yep. there's, there's 30,000 people gathered for two weeks to admire the fireflies. And in South Carolina, there's a Congaree National Park Fireflies Festival, and there's one in Pennsylvania, and there's ones in India that draw millions of people, and there's firefly boat tours in Malaysia and Thailand. But not this year, so, because of coronavirus. Well, so, you know, I was trying to find a video of this because, first of all, an individual firefly to me is unbelievably beautiful. I can't imagine a an explosion of fireflies. Have you ever seen this, Simon Montgomery? Oh yeah. Well, we we used to have that many fireflies in our backyard, and I've seen it in Shunderban in the big mangrove um, swamp between India and Bangladesh. That the fireflies just light up the whole mangrove forest. It's it's magic. It's wonderful. And I have noticed that they're going away. And there hasn't been a firefly census. They just started trying to do a census last year. This will be the second year of trying to actually count fireflies to see if what I've observed and a lot of other people have observed that they're they're we're losing we're losing these guys. And it's it's a horrible thing to lose. They're absolutely magic. Um they, they're beetles, you know. Um, they're so unlikely. The whole world on fire. And to think that we are extinguishing this with our lights and our pollution and our pesticides. Uh. Simon Montgomery, 
As always, thanks so much for your time. You're great. We really appreciate great it. Great talking with you guys. Thank you, Simon. Take care of your animals. Absolutely. We will. <laughs> Simon okay. Montgomery is a journalist, naturalist, and Boston Public Radio contributor. She joins us monthly for the Afternoon Zoo. Her latest book is The Magnificent Migration on Safari with Africa's Last Great Herds. Thanks again to you, Sai, and thank you for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. You can keep up with us 24-7 by way of our podcast on iTunes. Tune in tomorrow. Rick Steves will be with us. Andrew Cabral will be with us. And Andrew Basevich on the military's revolt. We want to thank our crew, Chelsea Mers, Arjun Singh, Zoe Matthews, Hannah Ubley, Aidan Conley, our engineer, John the Claw Parker, our off-site engineers, Miles Smith and Dave Goldstein. What's on TV, Jim? Uh, Marty Walsh is going to join me. The mayor is going to join me. Then the former president of the National NAACP is now at Harvard, founding director of the William Monroe Trotter Collaborative for Social Justice at the Kennedy School. Cornell William Brooks joins me. And then I haven't done a commentary on IMHO during the pandemic tonight on not wearing masks. I'm ready to explode. I'm Jim Browdy. Back by popular demand, the well, IMHO. I wouldn't say that. Back by my demand, are- <laughs> anyway. I'm Marjorie Egan. I'm Jim Browdy. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please tune in again tomorrow and have a great afternoon. See you.